Yo, yo, everybody, Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. Yes, we're back to the land of dreams. Dream. And the first caller had a very powerful dream about saving his sons from the future. And I hope that you'll give it a swing. It was a really, really riveting conversation, which went in many, many different directions, as deep explorations of the true self tend to. So I hope you'll check that out. Caller number two. Hey, ever heard this question? Is the existence of government moral? If so, is it necessary? And the degree to which we follow principles or follow pragmatism has always been a challenge in philosophy. And uh, yeah, we pretty much clear it up in this one conversation. Number three, this may also have happened to you on occasion. Caller says, I'm a big Trump supporter. How come every time I try to have an honest conversation or debate with someone who doesn't like him, usually a liberal, I am met with non-arguments? Hey, maybe I'll see some of those not in arguments too one day. You just never know. So I had a great conversation about all of this. And as usual, thank you so much for everyone who calls in to share their hearts and minds with the world and the future forever. FreeDomainRadio.com slash donate to help out the show. We need you more than ever as we continue to grow. FDRURL.com slash Amazon. Eh, just bookmark it. Make it your homepage if you do a lot of shopping. That also helps us out. So let's get on with the show. All right. Well, first today we have Andrew, who's calling in about a dream he had. And Andrew will read his dream in just a second. But, Steph, if you can just explain dream analysis and why we occasionally have those on the show, they might be helpful for some of our new listeners who aren't familiar with it. Well, you know, the other stuff takes a lot of research and facts. So <laughs> it's not. No. So uh, I, um, yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, Freud, some of his theories, the idea that dreams are the royal road to the unconscious, the dreams can help you learn a lot about what's going on deep down in your mind, in the really bottom of the brain, metaphysical, philosophical part that is generally not welcomed by a rather delusion-addicted society around you. So um, I have certainly found dreams to be very helpful to figure out within my own life. And I would say that the people who've called in and we've uh, talked about dreams, uh, they've got a lot of really, really helpful stuff out of it. It can really tend to blow wide the doors of perception. And so uh, I think that they're – and, you know, art is a form of dreaming. Um, stories are a form of dreaming. And a lot of times um, even the our own history, which is half narrative and um, half fact, is a form of dreaming as well. So. Um, I know it's, you know, for people who are new, we've done a lot of politics and stuff, but the first order of philosophy is know thyself, and dreams are a very powerful way of uh, getting into your own uh, deeper self, so that's, uh, that's why we talk about it, and uh, I hope you'll find it interesting. All right. Andrew, let's hear your dream. Hey, Steph. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you doing, Eddie? Excellent. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm a longtime listener and, more importantly, a longtime donator to the show. So I just wanted to give a shout-out to all those listeners out there with deep pockets and short arms that uh, this is not the Bernie Sanders Parasite program. So please, please stop, step up, and help support this awesome show. Well, thanks, Andy. And as a donator, I just want to tell you in advance, you're absolutely right about everything you say. And in any conflict between us, you are correct. Uh, that's what you buy is one spineless participant in your conversation. Just kidding. <laughs> anyway, so you want to you wanna take us through the dream? Sure, sure. So dream started off that I was at a campaign rally for Hillary Clinton, and that, I, was <laughs> in, I was in the VIP section with Paula Jones and Jennifer Flowers. Oh, oh, sorry, wrong dream. 
Oh, sorry, let me just switch over to the other one. <laughs> I I think that that movie comes with bad lighting and a 70s soundtrack, if I remember <laughs> rightly. But uh, Well, this is a serious topic, so I just kind of wanted to break the ice a bit here. Sure. Okay, so here we go. So the dream started where I was on a ship sailing out at sea with a bunch of guys. We were sailing along, and then we were heading towards another similar ship like ours. So both ships were alike. It was the big sailing vessels. You think of the old-time movies with the big white masks that you kind of see in those pirate movies. On the other ship were a bunch of guys with long buccaneer swords, and they wanted to board and take over our ship, just like pirates used to do. We tried to go, you know, get our ship to go back the other way away from them so that they couldn't board our ship, but it was to no avail as the current kept moving our ship towards them. So realizing that we were getting close to their ship, seconds notice and also like in the movie the rock it was clear that one side the other the guys in the other ship were far superior to us and would definitely overwhelm us if we decided to fight them therefore the guys from the other ship were easily able to persuade us to surrender to them which we did then we found out that we all had to go back to a hospital where all of our wives had just given birth to new baby boys our attackers went with us to the hospital so that they could take our sons away from us and conscript our sons into the army. I went into the hospital and saw my newborn son, and it was really my son. However, then suddenly somehow a period of time had elapsed so that my son was not an infant, but now he was actually old enough to walk. And that was when the attackers could actually start taking our sons away from us. And this was because the boys needed to be able to walk in order to be able to be useful in the attacker's army. So basically, in order to uh, get them in the army, they had to be a minimum age where they could at least get up and walk. So these, these guys were ready to take our, all of our sons away. So each one of us had a sign to us to go with us into the hospital room to hand over our sons to them. It was so incredibly saddening because when I walked into the hospital room, I saw the face of my younger son and when he was a cute little toddler. He was walking around the room and I had lots of memories of you know, holding him and all that. And this really, qual you know, and because he was qualified, you know, he's walking around the room, he was qualified to be taken away and conscripted into the bad guy's army. So when I walked into my, the room with the assigned guy, I actually saw my mother's face there. And then, wow, this other feeling came over me that I felt even worse than before because I really couldn't bear it. It was kind of like similar to the feeling that I had when I see, you know, Germans taking away Jewish kids uh, from their family during the Holocaust. Quite powerful indeed. Although I was resigned to the fact that I had to hand over my son to this terrible guy, the sight of my mother in the room spurred me to ask him if he could at least tell me where my son would be stationed so that I could someday go visit him. The guy listed a few names from some town in New Jersey in, Mass in uh, America, but I told him to tell me where the town would be. I forget the names, but he mentioned three names that started with a W. And he did tell me because he started to feel a bit bad about my mother not ever being able to see her grandson again as he would be taken off to war. Yeah. And I this guy as someone he knew. And he said, the policeman said to him, hey, aren't you from this town in New Jersey? I blurted out, jumped into their conversation and said, yes, and he's trying to kidnap my son. This really startled the policeman. I pushed the kidnapper towards the cop so he could arrest him, which the cop did. Then... I got this huge surge of energy. I ran into the other hospital rooms and started attacking all the bad guys one-on-one. -on -one. I punched one guy in the face, and he took a, out a large hook, like a pirate's hook, 
you know, like if they've got their arm chopped off, or they've got some kind of hook on them, and he tried to stab yeah. me with it. But I was able to avoid the hook and able to kill him too. I ran to the next room and fought a bad guy that was in there and was able to defeat him and thereby free one of the other sons as well. I ran, this continued as I ran from room to room and won every battle to free all of the sons from having to go off to war. Then I woke up, I was mentally and physically exhausted from all of that fighting and, and that sheer tension. I woke up at 5 a.m. with my heart pounding and adrenaline rushing through my veins. This was such an intense dream that I was not able to get back to sleep. And this dream was doubly impactful because I'd had a similar you know, intense dream just the night before. So that's how it ended. I just woke up in this, uh, you know, sweating, my heart pounding. That's a, a beautiful dream, Andrew, like a passionate, powerful and obviously heroic dream. And uh, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. Now, y you have actual sons? Yes, I do. And, you know, I, the reason I called is I wanted you to interpret it. But of course, I've got some of my own feelings, obviously. I have two sons, and the younger one had recently become a teenager. And I think, you know, in looking through this and what I'd written to you, that, you know, they're not kids anymore. They're, they're really young adults. And I've, some of my answers, you know, I have to step up my game here is I don't have good answers anymore. A lot of, we spent a lot of time, you know, my kids had read about Michael Brown, and we had talked about it and um, read some articles and discussed it. And my son went into school, and his teacher, you know, liberal government school teacher, spurted out the party line and my son went right back at her saying, no, this is not what happened. And he explained it and he had all the details. And um, so, you know, just kind of got to the point where there, you know, my younger son was asking me, you know, do laws really matter? We've got illegal immigrants. We've got Lois Lerner and the IRS. We've got Michael Brown. So it's kind of a, you know, these teenage years are really fun. It's, oh, you, know, you, you have answers. You, you, you have answers. You <laughs> may not want to give them, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I, I just, mean, you of all, I mean, listening to this show, you'll have answers. You know, I did a, a video, um, a couple of years ago called shape the hell up world about how embarrassing it is to introduce the world to your kids. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly spot on. I mean, uh, I do have the answers, but, uh, yeah, it's just, I just, maybe it's a better way to say it is that it's so painful to see them. It is. Um, you know, not thinking yeah, for themselves, but getting the answers. It's like, Oh wow, this is, this is a rough life, rough world out there. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's where, that's where part of it came from. Yeah. Now, um, have you been listening at all to um, any of the male disposability stuff? Or um, Oh, yeah. yes. Yes. You know, a video I did, um, How a Man's Heart is Murdered and, and stuff like that, about, around the degree to which men are sort of disposable drones that society uses um, as livestock. You know, men pay um, the vast majority of the taxes. Uh, men do the fighting, men do the dangerous work, men do the dirty work, men do the apprehension of criminals and the guarding of criminals and the transporting, transporting of radioactive materials and the shoveling of crap in the sewers. And, you know, men are just these like big worker drones that are continually berated uh, and put down so that they never, ever think, um, what the hell's in all this for me, right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, and so that that's because I, I don't know where you are in your sort of listening because mm -hmm. there are so many shows. Yes, there are. But uh, but it would be I assume you've gone through some of that stuff, right? Some of it, yes. But I'll take I did take a note and I will go back. I didn't. I don't think I heard the one you mentioned. Oh yeah, no, that's that's just sort of one one of the examples as a whole. But um, so let's run through the dream and I'll give you some thoughts and we'll sure, see if, sure. if it you know fits with with what's going on in your life. Okay. Um, so you're on a ship sailing out at sea with a bunch of guys. We're sailing along, 
then we were heading towards another similar ship. Both the ships were alike. Big sailing ships with white masks like you see in pirate movies. Um, long buccaneer swords. They want to board and take over your ship. Um, and uh, this is, they throw the planks across, right? And then they charge across. Exactly, exactly. It's in Tintin, the Tintin movie and stuff, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, we tried to get our ship to go back the other way, away from them. They, so then you have to fight, right? We have to fight, right. So, Andy, isn't this sort of like you're at the place as a father where you can't shield your sons from the world anymore? That's correct. Can't shield them from the fight. Right. Because, I mean, you know, as, as fathers, we want to create this big, fierce, masculine moat around our family. Right. That's, that's a very primal and powerful impulse that it apparently has taken three generations to breed out of European men. But we wish to create this masculine moat around her family and your sons now are at the point where the you know they're being propagandized and that the you know the, the the world is is coming in you know it's seeping in through the cracks it's coming in the smoke like the smoke under the door uh, you can't keep the world away from your kids anymore that's exactly right and they're also and that was partly the case when they were younger, but now that they're older, they're getting out and going online themselves and interacting more with society. And yeah, I uh, I can't stop it. So nothing to do but fight back. Right. So the other shipper guys is far superior. Now, <clears throat> why are they? Um, sorry, why are they? <laughs> I'm yelling. Sorry. Why, why are they um, superior? Is it that there are more of them? Do they have better weapons? Uh, they have, they have better weapons. Seems like for sure. They have better weapons. Yeah. We were just a bunch of guys, and they were sort of, you know, this is what they do for a living. They go and attack other ships. So it was when clear. Did this, when did this dream happen? When did it time? happen? Um, Mid-February. And have you been following any of the U.S. politics at all? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Were you listening to any of my Trump stuff? Some of it, yes. Okay, okay. All right. Well, we'll come, we'll come back to that. Um, so um, we all have to go, you all got to go back to the hospital. Where you've got baby boys. Right. And this is a lot about men, but it's also a lot about women. And uh, there was something that really struck me, mm-hmm. which we'll get to uh, in a second. So, you, you know, the, your attackers went with us to the hospital so that they could take our sons away from us and conscript them into the army. Right. So the question is, why was this teacher, the teacher talking to your sons about Michael Brown, mm-hmm. um, a, a male or female teacher? A female. Yeah, as if I have to ask. But um, so why why is this woman? Why is she telling this? It was I assume Michael Brown, like Saint Michael of the the Holiness, who was you know gunned down execution style while begging for his life by an evil white racist cop. I mean, it may not have been that far, but I assume it was something like that. So why is she? Why would she do that? Why what's what's her goal? What's her? Incentive. Well, we're just in an area where there are lots of liberals, and that's kind of the party line you hear around town. Yeah, but why? Why is it the party line? I think this specific case was anti-cops and the cops attacking defenseless black people. Well, okay. I mean, that's sort of the narrative, but why? Why is that the narrative? Liberals, I mean, liberals are not that anti-cop. Like, whenever they have a drop, whenever they have problems, they call the cops. Right, <laughs> right, right. Right, I mean, it's the same thing with blacks. Like, uh, some blacks are, like, anti-cops. But that's basically the black criminals, just as the white uh, criminals and the Asian criminal. I think there's only one, <laughs> right? <laughs> but that they're, you know, 
the, the criminals are anti-cop, but you know, when the blacks get attacked, but they call the cops, right? I mean, yes. So the question is why? That's a good is question. Uh, what I remember most about is the fact that my son did actually go back and argue with her. So that was no, I like get a, that. Yeah, but the question I, I is why is that narrative why. being put forward? And I think your dream is trying to get to trying to crack that nut. Right. I don't know. Well, I would argue that it's not so much pro-black as it is anti-white. Mm. Right? Uh, the, the stories on the left, they, they always have a moral, and the moral is white and male is bad. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I saw this video. Um, you know, everyone's jumping all over Donald Trump for being attacked. Like his rally was shut down in Chicago by this bunch of thugs, right? Right. And everyone's blaming Donald Trump. And then an interviewer asked Bernie Sanders, well, a lot of your followers were instrumental in shutting these things down. Do, do, do you take any responsibility for that? And Bernie Sanders is like, well, millions of people vote for me. You know, if I, if I, if I was responsible for everything, every one of them, it would be a very difficult life. <laughs> like, it's exactly the same conversation. And it's this, like, pivot. Right. And then, that is insane, right? Yeah, it is now, I'm going to assume your kids are white, right? Yes. Right. Okay. Um, I'm going to guess that you are. Yes, I am. Vitamin D deficient as well. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, and there's also the case uh, last week or so when the police chief in Texas, they had a rally for Black Lives Matter at the local middle school, and they had a bunch of signs that were anti-police, one including hands up, don't shoot, and other things like that. And that, you know, this sort of jogged my memory again about this incident. And it really is amazing because the whole, as you know, like the whole story is false. It is. I mean... The whole story is false. It's like, you know, false flag organization. <laughs> uh, anyway, so, so the question is why? And I think the answer is that um, um, wh- white males are the, the tax livestock of the modern world. Right. right. Before, they were like the war livestock of the Western world, and now they're the tax livestock of the Western world. Um, males, particularly white males, and Asian males as well. I mean, they pay massive amounts of taxes. I, I mean, I don't know exactly what it is in the U.S., but in the U.K., women pay 60% less wow. taxes. And um, in America, like 70% of the population gets more out of the government than they put in. And these are, you know, minorities are overrepresented in that. And, you know, people are like, well, wh- wh- why are there so many white males at Donald Trump rallies? Well, that's like asking why there are so many cancer patients uh, getting chemotherapy. It's because they're the ones who are it, it applies to, right? I mean, right. Donald Trump's offering to lower taxes. And so, of course, the taxpayers, the people who pay the most taxes, are the ones who are going to be the most interested in that. It's like, why aren't there a lot of single moms out there marching for Donald Trump? Because single moms are on the receiving end of all the tax money. So anybody who threatens to cut taxes is threatened to cut off their gravy train. So it's got nothing to do with race. It's got everything to do with being on the paying side or on the receiving side of the tax equation. And um, so when you want to uh, exploit any particular group, you must make them feel like crap. I mean, this is the, the, the sort of predatory Catholic church telling everyone that they're evil for breathing, but they can pay a priest and get forgiveness for a short amount of time, make people feel like crap. And then you can um, charge them for alleviating 
the curse, right? So, right. so white people must be called racist. And then white people have to hand over a lot of resources and opportunities and jobs and money and preferential treatment to non-whites. And then white people for 35 seconds won't be called racist. And then when other groups want more out of white males, and it's not just white. I mean, the, the women yell about the men and then the men feel bad and then the men give resources to women. And, you know, white as a white male, you, you're just getting nagged into oblivion, right? I mean, and it's, it's just some point. At some point, like in order to have a healthy society, we're just going to have to say no, which like it's so unhealthy it, for everyone, for everyone involved. And and so I was sort of interested that did this dream dream come after the teacher was nagging at your at the kids about Mike Brown? Yes, it did. Right. Right. OK. So. So your kids are being set up to feel really, really bad about being white and being male. And so that, that then when people come and say, you owe us affirmative action, you owe us more uh, money in taxes, uh, you owe us, uh, you owe us, you owe us, well, they'll be primed, they'll be ready, right? And then what'll happen is the leftists will come in and try and scoop up all the money and then hand it out to buy votes so that they don't actually have to reason with anyone for a living. And so your kids are being set up with the original sin, sin of being white and penis-enabled. And um, as a result, there's piracy, right? This, this piracy is going to occur for the rest of their lives. And I think your dream is really a fascinating exploration of that, right? Mm. Um, do you have a, a religious background at all? I was brought up Catholic. My parents were sort of Christmas Catholics, but no, not but you brought up Catholic yes. because what's interesting is that it starts at birth, right, 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 and and this is Catholic Catholicism too, right? Original sin, you are born sinful, right, right, because it's kind of uh, interesting to me that that what's provoking this at the moment is your son's entering into manhood, biological manhood, right, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and yet in the dream, it's not when they hit puberty; it's when they're born that it's happening, right, right, right. That's interesting. So you go to the hospital, you see your, new, your newborn son. Now, is this, you, you, like, is this a memory to your actual firstborn? No. Or is this some other kid? Oh, it's my son, yes. So I do see my son's face when I go to the hospital. And it is your actual son? Yes, yes. Right, okay. So somehow a period of time had elapsed so that my son was now old enough to walk, and that was when the attackers actually started taking sons away from us. When did your kids... Um, did they go to a daycare uh, around a year of age or anything like that? Uh, yes, they did. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So this would be, <laughs> I would assume this would be in reference to that, right? Yes. Interesting. All right. Uh, that's because the boys needed to be able to walk in order to be useful in the attacker's army. Huh. Interesting. And why did your kids uh, end up uh, in, uh, in a daycare? Well, my wife worked part-time, so the kids went to daycare two to three days a week, and my wife worked two to three days a week. Was she a supermodel? Was she a supermodel? No. Did she lactate gold? <laughs> no. She was a, did a contractor she, at a company. Did she cover the costs of uh, daycare and all of that? I just, you know, yes. working part-time, and we want to be home. Exactly, yeah. It, was, uh, it did cover the cost. It was about even. So it didn't make any so lose. What? What? What's the what? Why? Yes. Yeah, why? Why? I mean, she was basically not making any money in order to not see her children. Right. Right. 
So why? Well, had I known then what I do now, things probably... Oh, no, no. Yeah. Listen, and I know it sounds like I'm being a dick, right. maybe I am. <laughs> but um, well, you to get out but of the my house, question is, uh, what was the story that your wife was giving you or that you were giving yourself? Because economically, yeah, I mean, it makes no sense, right? Right. Economically, it makes no sense. So she wanted so to get out of the house the and, and continue working. To, you know, she thought it would be too much to stay home seven days a week. What do you mean too much? I don't understand. Too much stress. Too much stress. Right. Just staying. Were, were you, like being were your son kind of very stressed? cooped up at home. So she wanted to get out and out of the house and work one or two days a week. That was the reasoning. Did she not, does she not have any family or friends around or, I mean, this cooped up thing, you mean you just get your kids and go to the park, right? I mean. Right, right. Oh. I know I didn't really have any family around at that time where we were living. And did you like have uh, friends or anyone else who had kids? Was there anyone else in the neighborhood? Because this is one of the problems that's happened, right? I mean, mm-hmm. to... I don't want to sound like I'm throwing either you or your wife under the bus here because right. it's a it's a drag, you know, because in the past, you know, I think about, you know, Phyllis Schlafly when she was having her six kids or whatever, right? I mean, mm-hmm. everybody on the street, all the women were home and, you know, everyone came from the same cultural background. So everybody knew each other's values and, and could all like discipline each other's kids if necessary or at least right. give them feedback or whatever. Right, right. And so it was kind of fun, right? I mean, everybody, because it's a lot easier to raise kids when there are lots of other kids around. Exactly. Yeah, they weren't right. So you, yeah. you just you go. Oh, let's go over to so and so's. We'll have coffee and 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 uh, and cake, and and the kids will will play with each other, and we can get caught up. And but that's all gone now. I mean, now you've got they call bedroom communities, right? Where like everybody is gone during the day. Uh, the women are all off at work, and so if you're like the one person home on your street, you, you got nothing and no one, right? That's exactly how it was, and. Kids in our neighborhood were all 10, 15 years older, so there weren't any kids toddler age when we were there. Mm. Right. And this happens even in the summer, right? Because, of course, in right. the summer, uh, a lot of the, you know, the moms are still working. I mean, there are a couple of the golden goddesses of, of public schools and, or government schools who have, um, you know, they have the summers off, right? I mean, right, but right. It's, um, it's really, it's tough. Like, the, the whole... The whole community thing has been broken. And now, what's that? I mean, it's great for the government, right? And this is why I think, you know, that this happens when the kids are um, at this sort of, it's great for the government because your wife is off paying taxes. And the people, you have to hire people to take care of your sons. And those people are usually hired by the government or licensed by the government. They themselves are paying taxes to the government, the government gets the property taxes from whatever building the daycare is housed in. Like this, this, this goes on and on, right? I mean, it's really great for the government for your wife to hand over the kids uh, to to daycare operators. It's just probably not super great for your kids. How did they? How did they adjust to that? Yeah, it was tough. I mean, this reminds me of the Charles Murray book, Coming Apart, where you mentioned the other neighborhoods are not mingling; their communities are further apart and you know we didn't go to we didn't go to church we didn't take the kids to church so that avenue was not open so it was uh yeah because their social life was either we were able to go over some cousins a few you know times away or to daycare for the kids and that's why you've got this weird thing called a play date 
Like, it's freaky. I mean, I don't know where you grew up. I would think we're not that dissimilar in ages. But when I grew up, the concept of a play date was like unbelievable. Like uh, nobody would have any clue what you were talking about because basically you went out and played with kids. Exactly. You just ran around the neighborhood and, uh, and whoever was there, the, you played. I did this from the age of six or seven onwards. Just go off, go roaming the neighborhood uh, and go do your thing. When the streetlights come off, or you, my mom had a bell. <laughs> she like, <laughs> bell, she'd ring like, come back home, sheep. And, and my mom had a bell. She'd ring out the window when dinner was ready and we would go home. And this idea that there was some sort of formal arrangement where you go over and make awkward conversation with other parents while your kids, you know, get to play once every three weeks, if you're lucky. I mean, it, it, it was not any, any, any part of, of my childhood. You just would, and there were so many kids around. And there were kids, like when I grew up, there were kids of different races around, but they all had the same culture. Mm-hmm. And um, at least when I was growing up, nobody was sort of new off the boat. Actually, that happened just as I was leaving England. There was a big influx of people from Pakistani, from Pakistan, because I think that they were just closing down the window for being able to emigrate to. So yeah, I grew up with, you know, the Indian kids and the black kids and Chinese kids and all that, but they were all British kids. And so we all you know, the race didn't matter because we all have the same culture. Uh, and that, of course, is not really so much the case uh, anymore. But, um, yeah, so now you've got this weird thing where everything's got to be really formal. And uh, that sort of glorious anarchy of just going out and negotiate. Because all, all that stuff, as you know, it's about mm-hmm. negotiation, right? Like, what exactly. are we going to do? Who are we going to do it with? Who's in? Who's out? Who's ostracized? Who's not? Uh, and uh, I, I think this gave me a lot of the grounding for believing in sort of spontaneous self-organizing societies because that's how I grew up. Yeah, your feedback, you mentioned you only have one child, but I have two, and you did mention, you know, if you did on a previous show, that if you did have two kids, you'd sit down and have them work it out. And that's that's been very helpful to me. And, you know, we sit down at the kitchen table and we talk through everything, and they have to come to some kind of agreement, and that's uh, that's definitely the way to do it. Yeah. Okay, so so I think so far, right, you got a newborn son. Mm-hmm. And then, boom, because this is about the enemies. Right. Right, this is about the enemies. And so when your kids, when your babies were home with your wife, then I think this is why you skip over that first year. I see. Right, because there were no enemies there, right? Then mm-hmm. you put them in back, you put them in daycare, which is for the attacker's army. Right. And let's see here. So each one of us had a single attacker assigned to go with us into the hospital room to hand over our son to them. So incredibly saddening. I saw the face of my youngest son. He was walking around the room, qualified to be taken away, conscripted into the bad guy's army. I think that's daycare. Mm -hmm. Um, When I walked with my assigned guy into the room, I saw my mother there. Now, this is really fascinating to me, Andrew. Mm -hmm. It's the degree to which... It's the degree to which your sorrow is much less important than your mother's potential sorrow. Right. Yeah, and there's also no mention of my wife. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's vanished for a couple of scenes in here, right? Yeah. So that's fascinating. And this is the degree to which men are, are, are biologically hardwired to self-sacrifice for female interests. Right. This is how you know I me. Mean, this is how the whole patriarchy thing is complete nonsense. I mean, right. Right. Uh, all that men do is is put on mating displays in an attempt to get women to sleep with them. I mean, this is we're, we're pussy beggars, as the phrase goes. Right. I mean, it's like, please throw me a kiss. You know. I mean, um, and so 
we focus on on women's needs. And again, this to me, there's nothing wrong with this mm-hmm. as long as there's no giant matriarchy serving state to to take even more power um, uh, and and give it to women. Women have so much power when they're young, right? When they're at the sort of peak of their sexual market value and so on. The women have so much power. You, you combine them with the state, you know, it's brutal, right? Yes. You're overwhelmed. And the only thing that limits the, this sort of insane power that, that young women have, the only thing that limits that is the recognition that if they really throw in with the wrong guy, then the rest of their lives could be a real mess. But now that the government scoops in and takes care of them, then they have no limits on their, um, on their power. And, you know, some women deal with this well and a lot of them don't, you know, just like, like all power. Very few people can handle even a, a medium amount of power without becoming corrupted. And uh, so what's fascinating to me is that you're, when, you, when you imagine how sad your mother will be to not see her grandchildren, that's when it really hits you. Yes. I could, you say, I couldn't bear to think of my mother seeing her grandson taken away with her. It's your son. <laughs> right. <laughs> but your mother, oh, how, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Wow. That's an incredible thing. Good point. Yeah, he obviously was. Uh... Why? They're your son. <laughs> oh, but my mother. And um, and you know, you should listen to when how a man's heart is murdered because I sort of I talk about the genesis of this and the degree to which you know when you were a kid, did your mother show a lot of interest in your feelings and did she show a lot of desire or significant desire to assuage any potential suffering did she how, how did that go for you as a <laughs> no not exactly i think you described it well when you said you know the two main problems with kids are they're inconvenient or they're honest and i think you know my parents were the old school where you know you can be seen but not heard type so you're basically oh yeah like I, I yeah like if if my mom couldn't see the, the tv if I was in the way, she'd say, you're a pain. You're just not a window pane. <laughs> it's, you know, can't see. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, my mother uh, would say door. You're a better door than a window. Right, right, right. So, so you're, <clears throat> this is how, you know, women often will control men. It's, it's the old, you're hanging by a thread. Right. You know, you're, you, it's the old thing, you know, Bill Cosby used to, to joke about back when Bill Cosby's jokes weren't sinister. Um, you, know, you, you can be replaced. I can make another one of you. You're like, you. Your position is tenuous. You're hanging by a thread. You can be abandoned. or you know. And again, it's, I know it's kind of make, made as a joke and, and you know, obviously wasn't that serious. But you know, as, as kids, you don't usually want to take a whole lot of risk about that stuff. Exactly. Um, okay, so you focus on your mother's needs and even though it's your children that are being taken away, it really you know, hits you emotionally when you're thinking about your mom. I just think that's really, that's a very, very telling moment. I remember when I first read this, when uh, Mike first sent it in, I was like, okay, spend a moment or two on that. Okay, so as you say, although I was resigned to the fact that I had to hand over my son to this terrible guy. Oh, <clears throat> sorry, and, and this, you know, this is interesting because if you had known... Then what you know now, I imagine, Andrew, that you would have pushed back a lot against your wife's desire to go to work, right? Yes, and I would have read more about, the, you know, the early childhood parenting because I thought we were actually doing the right thing by socializing the kids in daycare sooner. 
So I really thought I was right. doing a good thing, just like you mentioned. A lot of kids, people uh, think that hitting their kids is a good thing. Right. 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 Because I mean, the you know the speech basically to me is okay. Well, um, we, we'll find a way for you to have more of a community, but you know we we didn't get married to have affairs, and we didn't become parents for other people to raise our kids. Right. And, um, but what's interesting is that I would imagine, you know, I, I, I'm trying not to categorize you, mm-hmm. but you know, tell me if this, I'm just based on the dream. Tell me if this makes sense. Um, is that, well, it's what your wife wants. So your job is to provide it. Well, I would say, yeah, again, we th- I thought we were doing, it was the right way to, to go. I mean, I, you know, being brought up, it was kind of flying solo, you know, the parents were really hands-off and we kind of had to find our way ourselves. So I had read a couple of books on, you know, raising kids, but I didn't, none of them included daycare or wife working or any of that stuff. It was more like how to raise your kid to be a better man and things like that. So, not, Would you say that, that in your relationship with your wife, though, that um, do you have this sort of feeling? A lot of men do, and you may be an exception to this, but do you have a feeling like, well, if that's what my wife wants, then it's kind of my job to figure out how to provide it to her? Yeah, it's kind of give and take, right? So um, it was more, I guess it was more working on the relationship between me and my wife as opposed to what's best with the kids. That's not really an answer to what I, <laughs> what I said. <laughs> um, Sorry, can you repeat it? You no problem. Um, okay. So, um, with with your relationship with your wife, mm-hmm. do you feel, as a lot of men do, mm-hmm. uh, but some men don't, of course, do you feel like, oh, well, my wife really wants this, and therefore my job is not to question it, really, not to oppose it, not to criticize it, but if my wife really, really wants something, uh, it's my job to find out how to provide it to her. Yes. Like your wife really wanted to go back to work. Mm -hmm. She was, you know, stressed to being at home. And and so your job was to facilitate that as... Because I think the dream is saying that you're motivated more by what women need than what you experience. Right, right. That was certainly the case in her going back to work and kids going to daycare, yeah. Right. Right. Even though I would imagine that your, your sons resisted that transition probably quite vocally. Yes, they did. Right. All right. So, so this is an important thing. It's not your wife's fault. It's not your fault. It's just, you know, it's like me being proud for my command of English. It's like, well, that's just what I grew up with, right? right I mean, right. Uh, men are raised to serve everyone but themselves. Mm-hmm. And 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 naturally, like the most selfless people in the world, all they're called is selfish. Exactly. You know, if you ever want to, if you ever want to be abused in this world, publicly display a virtue. It's true. It's true. Yeah, think, think, yeah. Like, think of any group that has ever provided more to minorities than sort of white males, and then think about who's called the most racist. Think about which which culture has given the most to women and tried to forward the interests and rights of women the most. Uh, it is, you know, white Christian European culture by far. Like, no, it's not even a close second. And which culture is called the most sexist? Western European. Which culture has the least rape? Which one is called the rape culture? Which, you know, like, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's, if you ever want to be abused in this world, put out a public virtue and just wait for everyone to call you the exact opposite of what it is that you're doing. This is, this is why people don't want to be good, because being good is putting a big, giant marker 
on your head saying, here's, here's what I care about, here's where it hurts, and here's where the bullet can separate the bone. No good deed goes unpunished, right? I think no, deed goes un- no good deed goes unpunished. Think back to the 60s where they had the uh, white flight. Um, there's an expression in America where they say the blacks follow the Jews. So the blacks always moved into the areas where the Jewish people were living. And, you know, the Jewish um, charities gave a lot to help black people. And then, you know, when things got tougher, the black people, they burned down all the temples and they were rolling the Torahs out in the middle of the streets and that. So thanks a lot for nothing. Oh, don't even get me started on Detroit. Bill Whittle actually just put out a video about Detroit that's just, it's heartbreaking. You know, he's got pictures of this, the library in Detroit from like the 1950s. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. And then he had pictures of the library in Detroit before it was finally torn down. All of the copper wire had been pulled out, all the lead, like all the plumbing, uh, all the fixtures, everything had been ripped out. But there was only one group of objects that had never been stolen. What was that? that? The books. No market for the books. Um, Detroit was the wealthiest city in uh, America in the 1950s. I went to the History Museum in Detroit, and it was interesting. Our tour guide was an African-American guy, maybe 70, 75 years old. Very knowledgeable guy. Told us all sorts of interesting things about the history of Detroit. And then he talked about you know, the black people who had left America and went over the border right there. It's right over the bridge to Canada. And he said, you know, we've had, and we try to get these groups going where, you know, the blacks in Detroit would go and partner up with the blacks who had moved to Canada and have these, you know, social gatherings. He said they wanted nothing to do with us. He said they, it, was, it was quite a shocking that he would tell this to a group of white people. But he said, yes, the, the black people, they, it's like you talk about Mexicans leaving Mexico coming to the U.S., they got out of the U.S. They didn't want anything to do with black culture. They wanted to go to Canada, even though see, we can see there, you know, right over the border. They want nothing to do with us anymore. They're out of here. So that was that was quite a shock. Oh, I mean, this is the this is the the gruesome, repetitive spectacle. And you know, when people understand race and IQ, it becomes much more comprehensible. But um, yeah, it's a, a thriving white community, and then um, black people move in, and and crime goes up. And uh, disruptions goes up. And then in Detroit, of course, as there was in a bunch of other cities, there's a bunch of riots. And then the white people move out. And then the smart black people move out. And then who's left? Like, what was the average IQ of people left in Detroit now? 70, 75? Come on. And, and then what happens is the white people all move away and the blacks take over the city. And then what happens? Well, the city fails. And then... The black people say, where are the white people at now? Let's go there. And now, like, there's all these rules in America now where you have to start integrating minorities into white communities. It's, like, illegal to not. And it's, like, I mean, it's it's so ridiculous, you know? It's, like, the white people have moved away. Now you don't have to deal with all that racism. Yeah, the library in downtown Detroit is in shambles, but they've got a new MGM grand there. So you want to go donate all your money to the, the casino. There's, that's a brand spanking new. But again, right, right, you just go right over the border to Windsor, Canada, yeah. and uh, it's, it's night and day. Yeah. No, and, and look, I mean, I, I strongly, strongly resist anybody who sort of says anything about black culture in America because, I mean, that's like saying white culture in Europe. I mean, what <laughs> so many different kinds, right? Right. And um, usually, 
um, when blacks succeed, the last place they want to live is in a black neighborhood. I mean, they'll this black flight as well. It's it's just basically higher IQ flight, and um, it's uh, it's um, it's a brutal, brutal situation, and it will continue to get more brutal until people start accepting some basic facts. Anyway, okay, so let's move on to. Um, so you had resigned that you had to hand over your son to this terrible guy, but the sight of your mother spurred me to ask him if he could at least tell me, right? So right. you're now asking on behalf of your mother. In other words, your mother's emotional needs matter, and yours don't, at least not nearly as much. You're doing right. it for your mom, right? Right. Uh, what's the significance of New Jersey? I don't know. It's just a uh, ways away from where I live. So maybe it was uh, the fact that it's, my son's not going to be near me. It's going to be, you know... Quite a few states away, so it would be a long, jer- long journey to get there. Can I go out on a limb? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's crazy, right? Okay, we go out on a limb. Okay. Yeah. New Jersey. Jersey is a kind of what? Jersey is a kind of, well, I think of Jersey in the UK, Livestock. right? All right. It's a, it's a cow. Mm-hmm. It's a Jersey cow, right, as far as I understand it. I see. New Jersey is new livestock, new cow. Mm. This is your son. Right. And one starts with W, which is woman. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a possibility. That's a reach. That seems it's, a bit it's, of a you know, I'm sh- I'm sh- Just because I shoot something over a house doesn't mean I can't hit a target. But uh, <laughs> right. that's a, a possibility. Um, <clears throat> he told me because he felt a bit bad about my mother not being able to ever see her grandson again. So here, this guy it only cares about your mother's emotional needs. Right. So he's like well, me, even though he's a he's, he's, taking, side, yeah, right? he's taking he's taking your son away. Right. And he's like, Well, but I feel bad about your mom not being able to see her grandson. Like men have no like even this bad guy is serving women. <laughs> right? Yes. It's like you often mention about World War One, maybe if you know we didn't have to serve the women, then maybe we wouldn't have uh, the two ships wouldn't have been fighting. Um You've been following the U.S. politics. Do you have any feelings about Chris Christie? Chris Christie. You said you had the dream in February, and Chris Christie endorsed Trump February 27th. I'm just wondering if you I have see. any. No. And that's New Jersey, right? Right, he's, he's from New Jersey. Yeah, I don't, don't think too much about Chris Christie. He was kind of one of 15 or 16 or however many people that were there at the original debates from the Republican side. Oh, okay, so you don't have any strong thoughts or feelings right. about him. Okay. So I, maybe New Jersey could be new livestock, new cow, right? I, I've used the, the livestock metaphor I've used a lot. Like my biggest video, the story of your enslavement, I talk about tax livestock. And I've talked about that a lot. So you've got a new son mm-hmm. who's going to be used by bad people. And New Jersey, I don't know, just could be uh, an interesting way of right. talking about the livestock. Okay. As the guy and I were walking out of the hospital, the policeman standing guard at the exit. Policeman recognized the guy say, hey, aren't you from Womansville? It's going to be kicked down. And yes, and he's trying to kidnap my son. So that's interesting. So, th- yeah, this is interesting. And because you ha- kind of have an alliance with this guy now, right? Oh, you know, he's being a little nice to you. He's going to tell you where they're going to put your son. And you're walking out together and so on, right? Right. So you kind of have an alliance, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, and then, 
there's a policeman who's actually on your side, right? Right. Who's that? Did he have a slightly British accent? <laughs> well, he did not have a, I don't recall his accent. Was he chiseled, cut, ravishingly good looking, slightly thinning on top? No, I'm kidding. Um, aren't you from this town in New Jersey? Now, when the policeman said, aren't you from this town? Mm-hmm. Was he like, hey, aren't you from, or it's like, hey, aren't you from, like, how was his... It was, hey, I've seen you around town. It was more, hey, I know you, how you doing, type thing. I think I know you. Yes, and he's trying to kidnap my son. This startled the policeman. I pushed the kidnapper towards the cop so he could arrest him, which he did. Right, so the policeman was, hey, how you doing? All of a sudden, whoa, this guy's doing something bad. So kind of like flipped a switch in the policeman's face. And, you know, maybe there's another male ally you have out there. I'm going to put myself in the cop's shoes, which I don't often do mm-hmm, because, mm-hmm. you know, they're statist and uncomfortable. But uh, that's one possibility that someone is now um, on your side. Right, right. Is willing to, to listen to you. Mm-hmm. And, um, okay, so then you ran into the other hospital rooms and attacked the bad guys one-on-one. I punched one guy in the face and he took out a large hook to stab me with it, but I was able to avoid the hook and then kill him. Right. Has there been, you, you mentioned the one thing with regards to the uh, woman teacher and Mike Brown. Yes. Is there uh, anything that, uh, any other sort of fights that you've had with regards to your kids? I don't know. How long have you been listening to this show for? About two years. About two years. And um, what has it done to your relationships out of curiosity? It's been helpful. You know, the honesty part, I, you know, I was, uh, I did take some philosophy courses back in college. I am roughly about your age. And, uh, I got really into libertarianism, libertarianism back in the day, but uh, it was it really never got anywhere. So I, you know, your stress really on practical philosophy that that's made a big difference. You know, in just discussions with my kids as well as family members and friends, it's uh, it, yeah, it's certainly made a positive impact on all of your relationships it's been universally positive i mean i don't get me wrong i think that's great i'm right. just surprised well it depends how you define positive uh, you, know, people who, you know people who i'm able to weed out that's that's also been that's also been you know spend a lot less time or no time with people i used to i don't bother with them anymore and uh, how many uh have your relationships has that occurred with it's uh, three, three of them that were quote unquote close before. So that's and your mother and my mother. How much time do we have on the show? <laughs> hey, man, you're a donor. <laughs> I can go till dawn. <laughs> well, my mother's still around. My father passed away a number of years ago. So my mother actually, uh, this is a really positive thing. Although it was quite like you mentioned. Mentioned, you know, philosophy is you know, everyday philosophy. It's really, it's really hard once you, you know, realize, you know, you take the, the red pill, the blue pill. But my mother had, she's now um, has an Alzheimer's, so she she's can't handle herself anymore, and the, the kids have to take care of her. But before she had, the kids. Oh, you mean like you and your siblings? No, my siblings, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah. So she had written a will and had had it all sorted out. Uh, and designated two of my older siblings to take care of her. And long story short, they didn't. So this led to lots of fights and threats of police and lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. 
till finally. Oh, because because of her property and people wanted it. Uh, because they disagreed with each other as to the right course of action for her. The two people that she designated as her power of attorney. Oh, no, is that, and I, obviously I don't want you to get into any yeah. really personal or legal details, right. but was it around um, how she should be taken care of as her ailment progressed? Exactly, yep. Okay. So the net-net is I had it, uh, long discussions with both of my siblings, and they decided to, they finally agreed that they, they didn't agree to disagree, they just disagreed, and I was able to come in and take over as uh, the power of attorney and be able to finally right the ship and get her into a place where she could, you know, for Alzheimer's patients. Right. So that's, again, practical philosophy in that. There was a long, you know, a lot of honesty. And one of the siblings, the relationship got a lot worse, but it was uh, the right thing to do. And the other one, the other relationship got a lot better. So thanks to you, I really appreciate that. Uh, you know, the two years that's really paid off. And that's certainly one shining example. I'm thrilled. Yeah. You know, donate to a philosophy show and save a billion dollars on legal fees. That's not bad. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, so I'm trying to figure out <clears throat> the guy with the hook. I wonder if that could be a sibling. Or it could be anyone in society just trying to go after me or my children. Well, no, because it's the, the, the killing is, mm. is pretty significant. Right, right. I mean, so to speak, you're sort of not exactly, but you're taking the law into your own hands, right? Because you don't you don't rely on the policeman, right? Right. The policeman's right. arresting you, you're the other guy. You're going to do it yourself, right? right? Right. So that's interesting, right? Because you're then taking a different approach. Because the first thing you do is you say, okay, well, get the cop, right? Now, why wouldn't you get the cop to come and help you with these with these other people? There's some reason why. Well, when I read it through a second, I don't have really an experience in interpreting dreams, but when I read it, I would say this huge ship came at us on our ship. It's kind of like the Fed or the IRS or problems that I can't solve. But when it came to one-on-one -on -one relationships, then I could actually do something. I was more of a position, you know, I can't do anything about, you know, in the short term about the Fed or the IRS, but I can in my one-on-one -on -one relationships. That's kind of how I interpreted it. Does that make sense? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, you, 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 of course, I'm not, I'm can't for, I can't for the life of me tell you what does or doesn't make sense to you. But what right. I will say is I'm not quite sure, and I'll sort of tell you why, but I wanted to continue with the dream until I get to the, the big finish, right. so to speak. Right. Um, I'm just, yeah, I don't know the guy with the hook, and you kill him. Mm -hmm. You kill him. I've never killed anyone in a dream, so I don't know what that motivation is. Right. But that is obviously a kind of murderous rage, right? Yeah. So I would I have feel to just rage. basically ask, right. who have you felt the angriest at? Who have I felt the angriest at? Well, as I dig more into the philosophy, I get angry at my parents. Ah, I mean, maybe it's a father. Maybe. maybe. Maybe you're in like a George Lucas movie where right. all the wasp dads have to die. Right, right. Right. But anyway, I don't know the answer to that, but that's just something to mull over, like, who are you the angriest at? Because right. that is um, a large hook to stab me with it. And it was, a, it was like a boat hook, right? Yes, like a boat hook. Okay. All right. Well, so mull that one over. It was, it was, uh, yeah, it was definitely a weapon. 
I'm sorry. It was definitely. Yeah, it was definitely a weapon. weapon. It wasn't, but it wasn't like hook for hand, right? It wasn't oh, no, like no, Captain no. Hook. No, I, I missed okay. it before. Yes, it's. Definitely- and I ran into the next room and fought the bad guy that was in there and was able to defeat him and thereby free another son too. And <clears throat> how are you defeating these guys? Same method, just running into the room and just attacking them. So you were killing I have. them. I believe so. Yes. Uh, otherwise, right. because these guys. I mean, you, I you're mean, basically they, like in a in a loop of a Jim Morrison song, right? <laughs> Father, yes, son, I want to kill you. <laughs> so as both mentally and physically exhausted from all that fighting, I then woke up, heart pounding, to free all of the sons. To free all of the sons. Have you been listening to um, any of my stuff or other people's comments about this European situation, this uh, migrants in the... Uh... Oh, yes, yes. Germany and the craziness over there, yes, I've listened to a couple of those. And I've European colleagues as well. Uh, do they talk about it at all? Um, they're not as open. They don't like to really talk about that. <laughs> I don't but, know. There's the power of this word racist. I mean, it literally is like people will, let, let's, let's let 2,500 years of civilization die because of a two-syllable word. Anyway, okay. I don't want to get off of my own thing about this. Yeah. Okay. So you are saving the sons. Right. You are saving the sons. Do you do you have relationships with other dads around? Yeah, my siblings, kids, and kids in the town. Yes, for sure. And how um, how is everything going uh, with regards to that? And you know, the, I mean, the, the stuff that you've you've learned and so on. Well, some of the you know some of the, some of the things are very disturbing, like kids playing football, young kids, you know. Kids in the the town getting concussions, you know, fifth graders or, you know, kids 12, 11 years old. That's very disturbing. I mean, we live in a nice town, so we don't have the, you know, the abuse that kids my age, you know, in school or by their parents, you know, isn't as much of a corporal punishment as there was when I was there. But, yeah, there's uh, some of that when sports. And so you're spreading some some good... Um, I guess, values with, with the other dads, right? Right, right. Right. Okay, then there really is only one last thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Because what's tricky about dreams, Andrew, is not, in my opinion, is not what's there. Mm-hmm. It's what's not there. And you've already, you know, mentioned this, right? Right. Which is, who's missing from the dream? My wife. Your wife is missing from the dream. Where is your wife with regards to your philosophical journey? What's her thoughts, perspective on it? Yeah, she's. We've had a lot of good conversations, and some painful, some, but certainly all revealing, all you know, making progress. Again, uh, I wish I had listened to your show twenty years ago instead of the, you know, the libertarians that I, <laughs> I spent so much time on. That right. wasn't really practical. But yeah, she's definitely open to discussing. And... But it's it's a long slog for sure. I mean, again, I think that the hardest thing is that the kids are now teenagers. It's like, okay, wow, how much could I make up for this lost time where I sort of you know, didn't parent as well as I could have? You know, ignorance is no excuse, but I'm just trying to make up time, I guess. Right. Now, how... Are you going to work to prevent your sons from becoming slaves 
to women. <laughs> to put it, you know, perhaps in an overdramatic, although not totally overdramatic way. <laughs> right? Because right. your kids are going into puberty. Now, right. I will admit it's been a little while <laughs> since puberty happened for me. Yeah. But I do remember having thoughts before puberty happened that didn't involve girls. And then what happens is puberty hits and it's like, bam, <laughs> all women, all the time, all girls. And like, that's what, right? Especially, right, I mean, right. Your kids are going to be more case selected than my childhood was. So mm -hmm. um, it won't be as bad or, or as good or whatever you want to call it. It won't be as intense for them. Right. But they are certainly, I believe, um, they're going to be viewed as disposable utility bots by society as a whole mm -hmm. and by women as a whole. Right. Right? So my question is, society and civilization won't survive if men self-erase. Yeah. Like, like no relationship can survive and flourish if one person abandons their preferences, abandons their self-interest, right. right? Right. You know, I mean, you, you if your mom, like if if your wife had said to you, uh, you know, Andrew, I hate being with you, but I did make a vow, so I guess I'll stick around. <laughs> Be like, oh God, please don't do me any favors, right? <laughs> right, right, right. You want the person to be with you for for selfish, pleasurable reasons, mm -hmm. and. You know, men made the world safe and then everyone forgot that the world was dangerous, which makes the world extra dangerous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's be basically been the history of the post-war, post-second world war period. Men made the world safe. Hey, look, we have nuclear weapons <laughs> and mutually assured destruction, so there won't be any more wars, really, at least not in Europe. And so a generation later, um, well... People forget that the world is dangerous. And then you get relativism, subjectivism, cultural relativism. All cultures are the same. It's like, yeah, but that's because you've been surrounded by cultures that aren't toxic and hostile to your very existence. So let's let all the North Africans in. Anyway, so. Well, I think the fact that he pushed back on his teacher regarding the Michael Brown lies, that, would, that made me very happy. And I think that's a very good first step. Not only yeah. that, but the fact that we discussed it in talk through these issues before the subject came up in school was, was certainly, you know, very, very positive. Right. So more of the same, you know, just more discussions. I mean, I spend a lot of time as much as I can with the kids. What do you think is going to happen to them? What, what pushback is going to happen to them? Do you think? Because listen, mm -hmm. look, look, I mean, um, I, I have underestimated this once or twice in my life. So I will, uh, <laughs> be honest about what I sometimes get and what I sometimes don't get. But I have underestimated this. Society coalesces around particular principles. And uh, a male disposability has, is one of the, society's always kind of had it. But in the past, uh, male disposability was counterbalanced by respect for masculinity. Right. Right, so... Yeah, okay, men pay a lot of taxes, and so only men voted. Uh, and um, men have to go to war, so men have more say in politics because they go to war, right? And right. please understand, I'm not a fan of voting, and this, right. uh, this is just... In the past, you know, and, and this is a comment that somebody left on my video uh, about the European crisis that just really 
you know, there was, I've mentioned this before, but there was this woman who was saying, you know, a man, you got to step up and go and protect their women. You got to step up and protect their women. And, and this guy was saying, okay, what special benefits do men get for taking on that risk in society? It's a great question. Now, that used to be the case that, yeah, okay, men got to go to war. Men do all the dirty jobs. You know, there's an old saying I think I got from Karen Strawn, which is that uh, men men invented labor-saving devices for women before they invented life-saving devices for men. In other words, the um, the fridge and, and the washing machine and the vacuum cleaner were all invented before scrubbers that kept black lung dust particles out of coal miners, males' coal miners' bodies. Right. And so in the past, there was a recognition that you know, the, the men are going to go and hunt and there may be dangerous men around and women are going to be disabled through childbearing. And so we, you know, men get a respect in society because of the dangerous, dirty, ugly, vicious, nasty jobs that the men are willing to do all the way from, you know, shoveling crap from the sidewalks to going down to mines and, you know, all, all you know, the dangerous work that, that men have always done. So there was some respect. And women got their respect as well as, you know, great bringers of life and, you know, like mm -hmm. uh, homemakers and, and uh, all that. And so there was sort of a mutual respect for these sort of separated spheres. And what's happened, of, uh, of course, is that men now are being used as disposable drones you just look at the family courts and you know just and tax imbalances so men are being used as just disposable drones and they're not being paid for it with respect right and so yeah you're all going to have to go to war but you know at least when you come home I'll bring you a martini and your slippers <laughs> you know i mean this is very oversimplified and and not very nuanced but mm -hmm. i think you get the general idea that yeah. male disposability used to be paid for by respect for men. And now there's still all this male disposability. There's just no respect. And so society as it is currently constituted rests like an inverted pyramid on male disposability without the payment of respect. Right. And so if your sons are going to go out into the world, Andrew, and they are going to challenge male disposability. All the meteoric streaking fires from hell may well land on their head. Because it's like, it's like questioning slavery before there are machines, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm working on this... Um, presentation on Aristotle and you know one of the great mysteries is why in the ancient world there was no free market there was no capitalism well why were there no labor saving devices really I mean they knew about the steam engine they knew about all this cool stuff well it's because people who had money and political power had slaves and when you bought a whole bunch of slaves you don't want to create labor saving devices because that lowers the value of your slaves right right I mean you don't buy a whole bunch of horses and then try and invent something that replaces horses, right? <laughs> it makes no sense. It's lower the value of what you've got. And so slavery could end when, for a variety of reasons that aren't really important to go into now, slavery could end when labor-saving devices 
could be invented and promulgated through the free market. And so it's, it's one thing to talk about ending slavery in the 19th century when the conditions were all ripe and it was actually advantageous to the ruling classes to end slavery at that time. Uh, because you got more money out of free people plus machines or relatively free people plus machines than you did out of slaves. But talking about ending slavery in the ancient world, would you'd have a, an exciting time. And so the, the level of aggression that's in your dream, I think is interesting relative to my son had a debate about Michael Brown. Right, right. What happens to, and this is, I'm going to give you this question. It's not just rhetorical. I'm going to answer it myself. <laughs> what happens to current society if men no longer accept being disposable without respect, without, payment, without the payment of respect? Things will change, for sure. I think that's why, you see a lot of, that's why you see a lot of support for Donald Trump. He doesn't apologize for being male or successful or white. Or I can see there's a huge base of people out there who, you know, if you think 60 million people voted for Mitt Romney and they didn't get what they wanted, I mean, in the popular vote, you look same with Al Gore, right? He won more of the popular vote. So there's always this huge percentage of the population out there in the U.S. who don't get what they want. It's a, it's a win-lose situation. So... Specifically for my boys, yeah, it's going to be a hard road ahead. But uh, I think part of the you know, the anger is that it's you know I, I can't make it easier for them. I just got to help them work through it. Well, let's just say that men, let's say taxes get cut significantly, mm-hmm. right? So there's more money in the pockets of men and less money to hand out to others. What happens? Well, those people who were getting the goodies are now going to be up in arms that they don't get the goodies anymore, and they're going to be angry. They're going to push back and maybe riot or some type of violence. Oh, they'll riot for sure. Right. And the riots will be brutal. The riots will be brutal. I mean, this is why does the welfare state continue to exist? The the reason why the welfare state continues, everybody knows that it doesn't work. Everybody knows that it's a disaster. But the reason the welfare state continues to exist is that nobody has stomach to put down the riots that will happen if it's interrupted or even reduced. I mean, it's just a, they're just paying off a bunch of people who will riot. If they don't, right? It's just it's a shakedown. Right. Nothing to, it's nothing to do with charity or helping business. That's all, right? It's all right. nonsense. Nothing to do with that. Right. And um, if men go galt, which I think they are doing. I think they really, really are doing that. And if men decide to go galt, and I, you know, we get a... We get a lot of messages from guys who are like, ah, you know, I'm just going to gonna make enough to live on, but, you know, I'm going to grow my own food as much as possible. I don't want to get married. I'm not, I'm not into this anymore. We get a lot of messages from people like that. And. Yep. I think we hiccuped again. Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. All right. 
So yeah, we we get a lot of messages uh, from guys who are uh, who are going galt. They 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 survey the landscape and they say it's too dangerous. It's too dangerous to get married. The woman can just wake up one day and just decide to take half your stuff, destroy your life, charge you with God knows what. And um, I might never see my kids again. And right, I mean, it's too risky. It's too risky. And why, you know, I remember having a friend when I was younger. He got a raise and he made less money. Oh, got in a higher tax bracket. Yeah. Now, they've worked to fix that to some degree now. But they're saying, why? Why? What's in it for me? And if men go galt, if they check out, um, society is cannot, cannot sustain itself in its current godforsaken incarnation. You know, like there's um, a whole bunch of, of leftists who are threatening protests all this spring. Thousands of them are going to go out and disrupt all of the, I assume, Donald Trump rallies. I'm sure that's right. And they're talking about, you know, we don't want, there's too much money in politics. You know, <laughs> it's like, okay, then you should, shouldn't you be a fan of Donald Trump who, who's not taking money from anyone? No, right? And they're, they're going to go out and they're going to protest and they're planning it and they're organizing it. It's going to be the summer of protests. And it's like, ah, I'm, I'm so happy that you all aren't finding that this plan interferes with your gainful employment. <laughs> Jesus. It's like the Occupy Wall Street side from... I know, I know how to scatter these people, job applications and library cards. <laughs> it's like holy water. <laughs> Jesus. You know, I mean, because, you know, the people who are, well, you know, and people who work for a living, they don't really have the time to do all this stuff. <laughs> you know, this is why the dependent classes, you know, they, they just, it's 100% of their focus. And it's like maybe 5 or 6% of people with a job's focus, right? Because right. you can't, this is why the government, 6 million, reason 6 million and one, why the government can't work in the long run. But if you... Like, because you could be the epicenter of something really powerful here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I mean, I say this to every single one of my listeners, and <laughs> I don't know how many listen, but, mm-hmm. but you, like your sons, your son, by, by pushing back on this teacher's propaganda, mm-hmm. people will remember that. Yes, they will. And once one person pushes back, then other people will stand up and... Do the same. Freedom is the freedom to say that two and two make four. If that is granted, all else follows. Right? Right. It does not take much to wake up the world. All you need to see is one person pushing back. You know, and and seeing that the teacher was very self-confidently putting forward lies and that a child pushed back and got the teacher to back down speaks volumes. Like that that has such a ripple effect on anybody with half a brain in that class. Right. That, you know, they're gonna start looking things up. Oh. Ferguson lies. 
And um, they're going to also question not researching. Yeah, they're going yeah, to start researching all this stuff, right? Questioning other things that teachers have told them or people in society have told them. Yeah. And that, that's, that's, the, that's the goal, to get them to be skeptics. And what's going to happen to them as a result? People do not. Everybody forgets the blowback, right? Right. I mean, and what they're doing is heroic and brave and courageous, and I salute them and I salute you. But um, the more integrity they have, the more targeted they're going to be. And I wonder if part of this dream is I don't know that you have helped your sons. And I don't know how to do this. Your kids are older than mine. (laughs) And so I don't know how to do this. And, you know, if there are other people out there who've got experience in this, you know, call in and let us know. But I don't know if your kids are prepared. You know, I mean, I don't know if you want them to go to college. I don't know if you want, if they, if they're interested in the arts or if they'd go pure STEM or whatever, like, but if they go into the arts, I mean, they're going to have some vicious, vicious battles. Yeah, they're not into the arts. They're more into the math and science. Well, that's helpful okay. for sure. Yeah. That's helpful for sure. But, um, <sighs> do they, do they know that, that when you push back against a very profitable narrative for very ugly people, that, um, That there's a price. Well, they were much into the Harry Potter and those type films a few years ago, and now we're starting to watch more adult-themed, like, you know, In the Name of the Father, about the Guilford Four in England, and more real-life stuff like that. So they're beginning to, you know, beginning to expose them to more adult-like themes where they understand that society's going to push back. I don't think they really understand yet that it's going to happen to them, but we'll, we'll get there. Okay. Okay. And I don't have a very strong sense, Andrew, of the degree to which it may have negatively affected you. I'm trying to get a I'm trying to map that, but I feel like we go into these fog bags when I ask you about it. <laughs> so what, what specifically is the question? Um, that's a good question. Oh. <laughs> Let me let me think. <laughs> let me think about a good way to put it. Do you think, because they're starting a lot earlier than you, you got your life well underway before taking the red pill, right? Right. Now they're taking their red pilling not just themselves but others in their early teens. Right. Right. Do you think that you are equipped or? consciously aware of the fact that not only are they pushing back in a more politically correct environment than you and I grew up in. Again, I don't I assume you grew up somewhere in the States, but when I was growing up, the political correctness stuff was, was not around. Right. And, um, it was just as it was just starting up mm-hmm. when I was, uh, in, in university. Same here. And it was, Sorry? Same here, when I was in university. Right, so, 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 
you know, the, the Marxist-inspired social justice warriors have, you know, slid into their seats of power, like, you know, Jabba the Hutt in a giant toilet, and they're <laughs> squatting there. And they hold the cards now in higher education. Right. You know, the moment that the higher education started taking a lot of money from the state, and that's directly through sort of loans and, and grants and all that, but also indirectly by the government paying for a lot of people to go to college. It means that you, you can't have libertarians in college that much anymore because the colleges have just become, you know, they've become like baby birds waiting for the state to bring its big giant worm of taxpayer money and stuff it down their gullets, right? I right, mean, they've right. expanded, they paid themselves. They're so far away from the market now that the, the idea that you'd have a market-driven faculty is, you know, maybe outside of a few places, economics departments here and there. Right. But um, so I guess the answer to your question. So, so what I'm saying, I, sorry, they're, they're, they're red pilled way earlier than you are, right. and they're in a much more hostile environment than we were. Right, right. So, am I equipped to help them deal with that? I would say not yet, but I'm working on it. I think it's going to take some practice. It's, I mean, I don't see any other way. And they can just. Be- well, no, no, I'm not saying there is another way. I, this is. I just think that you might want to mull over what your life would have been like if you got red-pilled at the age of your kids. I see. Okay. Right. I mean, I didn't get red-pilled, really. I mean, I, I got objectivist in, in my teens. Mm-hmm. But you can kind of slither through as an objectivist. You know, the, the, the anarchist and the, the, you know, knowing some facts about race and IQ. And, I mean, like, oh, my God. Plus, you know, men's rights and... Ah, peaceful parenting and the voluntary family. I mean, these weren't things that I had much thought or paid much attention to or really even crossed my mind when I was younger. And if I were sort of to go back in time and be starting in my sort of early to mid-teens with the facts that I have now, I can't can't imagine. That would have been a big mind bend. I didn't have any of that either. Right. I mean, like I mentioned, libertarianism, I got into that in university, but after, you know, before that, it was not a whole lot of PC out there. Yeah, but, and and libertarianism is, you know, at least in the States, is relatively respected insofar as you're not just plain evil for even thinking about it, at least when I was a kid. Like, I could be an objectivist and people would have big arguments against me and I'd get the, well, don't you care about the poor and, you know, stuff like that, but it wasn't this rancid, bottomless, leftist hatred that is out there now. Mm. That is, oh my God. Like, I, I understand, I can't imagine when I was going to, to college, like I cannot imagine any group forcing the resignation of the chancellor or the dean. I, I, like, I can't imagine riots. I can't imagine violent protests. I can't even imagine sit-ins. I mean, maybe, you know, the 80s and and 90s were, I guess they were a particularly calm period in academia uh, for, I don't even know what reasons, but I can't, I can't imagine that the volatility of the environment now is, uh, is quite something. And, you know, if they're into the sciences and so on, that'll, that'll be better, right? I mean, yeah. Noam Chomsky talked about how, you know, in the sciences, at least there's some facts. You know, it's not just all, not just all opinions, and which is, does not say speak much to the arts, but, right. uh, 
But in terms of sexual market value, what do you think it's going to do? And, you know, I know it's a weird thing to think about with your kids, but, you know, you've got sons entering into their uh, teenage years. Um, what's it going to be like if they get red pills on male-female relations, male disposability and so on? What's it going to be like for their sexual market value? Well, it's going to be certainly be interesting. If they go to college, what the percentage of women in college is 55, 60%, depending on the college. So it's the opposite of when I was at school, it was, you know, 60% or more males. So, and yeah, it's still the uh, same number of spot men and women, though. It's just <laughs> more of the others, more of the other kind. <laughs> well, it's not only that, it's there's, you know, people flaming you out on Facebook or Twitter or, all of this stuff, so I didn't have any of that. There's this instant, you know, you make one mistake and everyone knows and you can't erase it. It's on the internet forever. That's a, it's a tougher environment. They've got to, uh, got to tread carefully. Yeah. So, you know, and that's yeah, the thing it's funny that's going over my brain. The internet has both brought our capacity for free speech and completely strangled our capacity for free speech at the same time. I mean, it's, it's a real double-edged sword when it comes to human self-expression. But uh, yeah. I, I think I think the people are underestimating what how big a fight is coming and i think part of the dream is i'm so angry that you know i'm not going to be able to you know have a society that or my, what's better for my kids when i had it i think it's going to be worse you know you see you like to see progression and you know leave the world a little better place but oh no it's worse it's going yeah, in no, the wrong direction so that's also yeah i mean the technology has made things better in a lot of ways but as far as the debt goes and and i mean it's it's terrible and the other thing, too, is that, uh, you know, one of the reasons, right, that the, the big topic, I'll, I'll just try and touch on it briefly. But, I mean, I read a lot about Ayn Rand's, uh, she wrote a lot of articles about the student unrest and the riots and all that in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, she was pretty old school law and order kind of person. And she was, and, and uh, Ronald Reagan was in charge, like he was governor of California when a lot of these riots uh, were going on. He just called in the National Guard and put the riots down. It's like, that's what you have to do. If there's a riot, you, you, you call in the National Guard, you put the riot down. And that's what stops it. There's no other way to stop it. But what happened was America in the 60s was fighting communism. And communism kept talking about how racist America was because that's what communists and socialists do is they, they race bait to destroy the free market. Right. And America is so painfully sensitive about its international reputation that the idea, like let's say that there are a bunch of minorities who are rioting, um, and they put the riots down, which, you know, if, if you're simply interested in the calculus of saving lives, then you put the riots down. Again, I'm not talking about the morality of the situation. Right. I'm simply talking about the practicality of the situation, that you go in hard and you shut the riots down right away using whatever force necessary. And that way you save entire neighborhoods, you save entire lives, uh, you save hundreds, if not thousands of lives, and you save entire cities. I mean, if the, if the riots in Detroit had been put down right away. Right away in the 1960s, Detroit would not be a decaying crap heap populated by herds of dangerous wild dogs at the moment. Right? Right. Yeah. The, the sort of slow decay is something that people seem willing to accept. You know, if, if they call in the National Guard and they put down the riot and maybe some people get, a couple of people get killed. Well, how many people have suffered and died as a result of the descent into godforsaken lawlessness and criminality that has happened to a lot of American inner cities after the taxpaying population left? 
Like they have, for every life that they saved by not putting the riots down, they have spent a thousand more as a result of that indecision. And again, I'm not talking about the ethics in terms of abstract non-aggression principle and freezes. I'm simply talking about the practical calculus of actually saving people's lives, right. of actually helping people. Um, if you don't put the riots down, the city dies. The city dies. Because the taxpayers all leave. And when the city dies, many more people suffer and die than ever could have suffered or died as a result of putting down the riots. And when you put down the riots, at least you're acting against people who are instigating the riots. Right? So it's the people at least who have some agency in the riots. You're acting against them. But when the city dies, I mean, four-year-olds get killed in drive-by shootings. They're not responsible. The people who are actually starting the riots, well, at least they have some agency in the matter. And so the longer this is deferred, um, the worse it's going to be, and it's been deferred a long time. And Reagan, you know, basically was saying to the people who did not put down the riots and the riots escalated, they didn't put down the riots, the riots escalated. And he said, well, you should have grabbed them by the scruff of their neck and thrown them off campus the moment they rioted. You, you march them off campus, you revoke their student membership. Nope, just no, we're not, we're not doing violence. We're not doing rock throwing. And this is not how a university, this is not how a civilization resolves its disputes. And he said, you should have just grabbed them by the scruff of the neck and thrown them off campus right away. He didn't talk about shooting people, right? But right. the longer this lawlessness continues, the worse it's going to be. And then, of course, America is terrified, you know, that around the world there'll be pictures of National Guard and shooting at people or trying to put down riots and, and uh, oh, it's going to be really bad PR and then you'll get whiny, nasally Neil Young whining about it forever <laughs> and ever. And um, again, I'm simply talking about the practical reality that when people start using violence in a free society, I'll tell you this, if people start throwing rocks at other people, they start throwing garbage cans through plate glass windows, I'm telling you, the, a free society would deal with that pretty damn quickly. And they would rather have Detroit die than put down a riot. That is so insane on, on, on so many levels. And the death of Detroit, and there are, of course, lots of other cities. Yeah, Ferguson used to be a, a nice town. This is when massive amounts of resources have been pumped in in the forms of welfare and government employment and subsidies and, and all of that and Obamacare and so on. When that all runs out, well, the amount of suffering and death that will occur will be beyond imagination. It's you know, if it's not treated decisively, it literally will become a civil war. Wow. And um, we don't want that. No, we don't. So, I don't know. Your, your dream is 
I think saying that it's not going to be as peaceful as you might want it to be. That's for damn sure. Now, I will say that your your sons will be protected. Your sons will be protected because as K-selected rational red, red pill people, they will be shunned by the most dangerous elements in society uh, uh, around uh, women as well, right? Mm-hmm. And um, knowing the dangers of female sexuality plus the you know current witch hunt for testicles going on in particular <laughs> on campuses, uh, that is going to be very helpful for them to know, I think. And um, so they uh, they are protected, but at the same time. Um, okay, last sort of little thing I'll I'll mention, um, which is which is this: the choice to be a parasite, and you know I'm not just talking about the poor, and the rich, military industrial complex, and all that subsidies and all that. I mean, the rich do it too. But if you choose to be a parasite and you die before your host does, you've made a great decision. Because you've had a relatively easy life. you got a lot of resources without having to work hard for them. And, uh, you know, particularly for lower IQ people, it's a pretty sweet gig. Now, if, on the other hand, you decide to be a parasite, or maybe you're raised that way or whatever, right? But there's enough information out there on the internet that people know what the alternatives are now. But let's say you are a parasite and you don't outlive your host. Well, that is a very, very bad situation to be in. It's, um, you know, if, if, you bet your, if you bet your house double or nothing, you either end up with two houses or no house at all. And... Um, the gamble that, that the dependent classes make on the continuation of government cheddar is, uh, is a very risky one. And if they, you know, if they, if they roll double sixes and, you know, they get, you know, the, the government prints more money and they, they threaten riots and the whatever, right? And, well, then, and they continue to get it and then they die of old age. It's like, yeah, good call from a sort of amoral practical standpoint. On the other hand, if, you know, they're sort of 40 or 50 years old and they don't really have any job skills or job experience and then the government runs out of money. It's like, oh, dear. <laughs> oh, you, you know, you did not make a good decision there, my friend. And um, I, I, think, uh, I think we're close to that. I really do. I think we're close. And um, <sighs> I think that... Um, I, I think certainly if you if 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 Hillary gets gets in, mm-hmm. I think Bernie Sanders is uh, you know field of burnout. I think he's uh, he's done. But uh, yeah, if you get a real leftist coming in, um, they can run out of money. Now the argument could be made that you need leftists to put down riots, and they will, uh, but they'll do it much more brutally than the people on the right will do. Um. But uh, I think uh, I I really do think that the government is close to running out of money. Can't go on forever. I mean, I appreciate all the time you spent here, Steph, and going through the stream with me. I think you know the the net net and the leave behind is you know 
again, thanks very much for all of your, you know, putting together the show. I mean, it's 10 years in the making, as you mentioned, this is a huge impact and I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I got to carry this on to my sons and I think the listeners out there as well to their children because uh, the next generation we've got to, uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're in that age now where we've got another 10, 15 years where we can make our impact and then it's, it's on to them. So. All right. Well, thanks, man. A great dream. Appreciate it. Uh, and, um, uh, I look forward to chatting again. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Take Seth. care. Okay. All right. Well, up next is Blake. He wrote in and asked, is the existence of government moral? If so, is it necessary? And that's from Blake. Hey, Blake. How you doing? Hey, Stefan. It's, uh, it's good to finally talk to you. It's my mic. Nice to chat with you, too. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I've been uh, watching your show for a while. I'm a big fan. So, uh, yeah, that's my question there. What do you think? Well, I mean, I, I could sort of give you an answer, but my big, I guess, better thing to do is to give you a methodology to answer these and other questions uh, in the same vein, if that makes sense. Oh, yes. So um, let, let's break apart the sort of moral versus necessary question at the beginning and just ask around morality. So if we have a definition of morality, then we don't have to worry about government in particular, if that makes sense. Okay. So what, what, what is a moral principle that you would accept as, you know, decent and universally acceptable? Um, well, you're familiar with the objectivist moral principles. I pretty much go by the book on those. Right. And I have a few challenges with the um, objectivist moral principles. Uh, objectivism has a lot to do with that, which is good for sort of man's survival or, or, or man's life and, and that kind of stuff. And, you know, that which serves man, that which is good for man is kind of the objectivist approach. I have some issues with it because for less competent men, they can gain many more resources by violating moral principles than uh, not violating them, at least in the short run. So I have, and I've got podcasts out there about that, so I don't really want to get into uh, a big discussion of that. But certainly... Ayn Rand's sort of fundamental dictum, I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never ask, and I will never live for the sake of another man, nor ask another man to live for my sake, is um, the non-aggression principle. And, um, I, I, you know, I think that's as, as, as sort of near as we need to get as far as, as, far as that goes um, with, with this principle. So um, the non-aggression principle, do not initiate the use of force against others, I think is a a fairly decent place to start when it comes to ethics. And most people would agree with that in an abstract way, would you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. The initiation of physical force is the, um, the source of all vice. All right. So then we have to turn to the question of government. So what is government? Well, I suppose that... Um all of our current examples of government are governments that exist solely through involuntary taxation. So I'd say um, there's no question of whether or not all of the current forms and past forms of government that have existed are unquestionably immoral. But um, Okay, okay. I, uh, 
I wonder if a government could exist based on voluntary taxation. Okay, so then we have the challenge of defining what taxation is. And we don't we don't want to make the the we don't want to make the definitions include their opposites, if that okay, makes sense. Okay, yeah. Right? So, we don't want to say, well, there's such a thing as voluntary rape or charitable theft or whatever it is, right? But then it just becomes we're we're bending the concepts beyond all value. Like if a concept includes its opposite, you know, like if if uh, mammals are both warm-blooded and cold-blooded, then I don't really know what a mammal is at that point. So we can't have a concept include its opposite. And so when you say voluntary taxation, since taxation is defined as the legal initiation of the use of force on behalf of, of a particular collective of individuals, like called the state, since taxation is involuntary, if we say voluntary taxation, we're saying voluntary involuntary, uh, and that's a contradiction in terms, so we have to find a different word for it. Okay, so um, government as a paid servant of the people, um, voluntarily paid, not through taxation, but through like you'd pay for any um, private business, I suppose, any private service, I mean. Right. Okay, and that's that's a great uh, step forward. So we're looking at government providing services that people will pay for in a voluntary free market situation, right? Uh, yes, but the whole free market um, aspect of it, because my understanding is government being the sole the existence of the government being that we grant it the sole discretionary use of force, like a, a monopoly on force in order to protect others against the initiation of force. So that um, it seems to me like a privatized government could um, lead to some problems there. Well, hang on. No, no. You see, now, now we're jumping out of ethics into consequences, and we, we can't do that yet. Yeah, right? okay, okay. So, so then the question becomes, if the government is providing a service that you can choose to partake of or not, you can choose to pay for or not, then the next question is, is another group of individuals allowed to provide a competing service, the same service. In other words, let's say it's uh, roads, right? So the government is just one potential road provider amongst any other group of people who might provide roads, right? And so if the government cannot prevent you from paying other people to provide whatever service the government is providing for, then the government becomes indistinguishable from any other group of people who are providing a service in a voluntary way, right? So it's sort of like saying, okay, so um, a Soviet restaurant, you have to pay to go. Uh, whether you eat there or not, they get paid either way, whether you like the meal or not, and and no no other competition along those city streets is allowed for that sort of Soviet restaurant or whatever. You say, okay, well, can we have a Soviet restaurant where you don't have to eat there, you don't pay if you don't eat there, you can get your money back if you don't like the meal, and they can't prevent any other competition, well, then doesn't it just become another free market entity, like a corporation, whatever that would look like in a free market, not like the sort of status incarnation? But wouldn't it just be then another group of individuals who are providing a service that you can or cannot participate in as you see fit? I suppose it would depend on the type of services. I mean, most... Um like all services 
like road building or, um, you know, whether you're selling candy or uh, mowing a lawn or whatever, you're, um, you're providing a value to those people. Even, I, I suppose even, um, alarm companies would be protecting the values of people, but providing a service to protect those values that anybody can offer. And there's no real conflict of rational interest if you go to somebody else for that. But if the government is only used for its, like if the only purposes of government that can be morally justified are say the military, the police and the legal system, then I'd say there'd be a, a conflict of rational interest. No, no, hang on, hang on. No, again, now, now okay, you go to consequences, consequences right? All right. Um, so look, either we're going to go on principles or we're going to go on consequences, right? In other words, we have an argument from um, abstract moral ideals or we have a sort of what we think would be better for people as a whole. Pragmatic concrete. In other words, there's pragmatism or idealism, right? Yes. Now – if we are going to go – yeah, so if we're going to go down the route and we're going to say the initiation of force is immoral, well, clearly, if the government is offering a service and somebody else wants to come and offer a different service or the same service but in a different way, that is clearly not the initiation of force. In other words, if there are five people who can wire your house up with internet, then clearly – those five people all offering you different services and pricing tiers and speeds or options or whatever, whether it's wired or wireless or whatever, those companies are not initiating the use of force against each other, right? By offering you these various things, right? Right. Okay. So if the government is offering a service and other people wish to offer the same service or a, a variation on a service or a different way of, 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 dealing with the issue or the problem, then that group that is offering a complementary or competing service to the government is not initiating force against you, right? No. Or is not initiating force against the government. Any more than if I open up a restaurant next to yours, I'm not initiating force against you, right? Right. Now, if the government prevents other people from offering services, then the government is, by definition, is violating the non-aggression principle. In the same way that if you come to me and say, if you open up a restaurant right next to mine, Steph, I'm going to burn down your house, well, then you are initiating force against me and you are violating a sort of foundational or fundamental moral principle, right? I suppose so, yes. Well, tell me, see, we, we can't build the house on, suppose on so. sand, right? I mean, so if that's not correct, you got to tell me how, because I, I don't want to keep moving forward if this is like a coin toss for you. Well, it's, I'm trying to wrap my head around the nature of the business because... But that, again, the principle, according to principles, sorry to interrupt, but according to principles, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a restaurant or a sporting goods store or a place that sells guns or a daycare or a place that sells guns and is a daycare. <laughs> it's a mixed up business model. Yeah. It doesn't matter what the content is. That's the whole point of idealism. It's like saying, okay, gravity is a universal concept. And you say, okay, well, what is the shape of the thing that has mass? It's like, well, no, that doesn't, it's not like a triangle and a square are going to be different from that, from that standpoint, right? 
Okay. And it's like saying, well, here's, you know, here's the, the, the equation for a circle or whatever. It's like, well, how big is the circle? I mean, it doesn't matter, right? It's, that's the whole point of a principle. The concept of length, it doesn't matter how long something is, right? Because length goes from like an atom, I guess, to infinity. And so it doesn't matter what the surface is that's being provided. The non-aggression principle as a universal principle cannot differentiate between opening a restaurant or providing military security. Now, we can abandon that if you want, and we can go to sort of practical consequences, but we have to make that. We don't want to mix the two together. Right. Okay. Um. Now, Ayn Rand's argument, sorry, Ayn Rand's argument was that, um, sure, the government violates the non-aggression principle, but, but, um, it's impractical for there to be two police forces because she would say, okay, well, what happens if someone from neighborhood A goes and steals something from neighborhood B and then neighborhood A's police force doesn't want to arrest them? And like you, you, you have to have sort of one universal uh, police force in order for it to, to work. And so she would then say, okay, I'm willing to violate the non-aggression principle because uh, practical consequences and people say like the free rider problem and so on like let's say that uh, we need national defense or some geographical defense i decide to pay for it and you don't pay for it then you'll get this free rider problem or what if we have competing ones and they're tripping over each other or whatever uh, and so there are these sort of consequence based arguments by which people attempt to bypass or wriggle out of universal principles like the non-aggression principle but i would understand the um the establishment of a state as such based on those objective laws. Um, I'm sorry, which objective laws? Um, like uh, the ob- objective approach to the non-aggression principle that, um, you know, a state that protects the rights of individuals and so on and so forth. Um, not necessarily as in being, having a monopoly on force, might not necessarily mean that it uses force to prevent others from taking that from, um, you know, offering the same service so much as in people who form that state explicitly state that they, within, you know, this geographical area that the use of force shall be monopolized by this figure according to this, um, constitution and so forth with that i don't i don't know if that would necessarily violate the non-aggression principle oh you know it does because if um if the state is funded by taxation that's a violation of the non-aggression principle and if the state prevents competition that's a violation of the non-aggression principle now if it does neither of those things in other words if you have to voluntarily pay it and it cannot prevent competition then it is an entity just like every other business entity in the environment and should not be called a state anymore. The state, by its definition, is a monopoly on the legal capacity to initiate the use of force in a given geographical region. Yeah, that's that's what I mean. So I would think that it could exist without taxation, but because the people within that geographical location have, like, it's a sort of a collective, I know there's no collective um, mind so much as collective effort say like um sort of like a, a like shares in a company almost 
that every person within the state kind of owns their own right to the to be governed by the state. Okay, well let me let me ask you this. So in any state situation, let's just talk about national defense, which you know a lot of people have a lot of trouble with, to put it mildly, right? So let's say that there's a country, Libertopia, and there's 10 million people in that country. Okay. And half of the people pay taxes, right? Because, you know, there's kids, there's old people, there's stay-at-home moms, stay-at-home dads, whatever, right? So let's say half of people pay uh, pay taxes, right? So you have uh, 5 million people paying taxes for this particular good, right? Now, clearly, if people don't want to pay taxes, it's going to be pretty hard for the state to collect it. So you have half the population who supports the existence of a monopoly of national defense, right? The, the Army and Air Force, Navy, Marines, or whatever, right? So we're okay. That, that's sort of the scenario so far, right? Um, that that's how it works in a government society, right? The majority, at least in a democracy, the majority of people have to want the government to do national defense and at least be somewhat willing to pay for it. Yes, well, not necessarily the majority. I would argue that the um, the richer a person is, the more it is in their self interest to have their good to have an existing legal structure to defend their goods because you know they have more to lose. So not necessarily. Okay. The okay. Majority. So, but no. That's so. But we have a situation where a lot of people are willing and able to pay for a particular. And we also have to say that it's the most practical way of doing it because if a free market in national defense is the most practical, then we have an alignment between the moral and the practical. In other words, if we say, well, we can't have a government because it violates the non-aggression principle. And so we can't have a monopoly on national defense because it violates the non-aggression principle. And it also turns out that that's the most efficient and productive way to provide national defense. Then we don't have a contradiction between our ideals and the practical consequences of those ideals. Would we agree with that? Um, sort of lost me there when you said... Uh... Well, okay, so let me, let me try it again. So let's say that... A completely free market okay. provides national defense. There's, there's competing agencies, and, and you know I've gone through a whole bunch of this stuff in the book, Practical Anarchy, which people can get at freedomainradio.com slash free. But there's no government, so we don't have a violation of the non-aggression principle, and the national defense that is produced by the free market is fantastic, is great, then we have conformity to principle in that we're not creating an agency that can violate the non-aggression principle through taxation or preventing competition. So we're, we are consistent in our principles and we have a good and positive outcome. Like the, it, it's, it's in conformity with the non-aggression principle and what it produces is great as well. Then we don't have, then, then there's no reason to oppose it, right? Um, it's the best the national defense. It's the best national defense you could get, and it doesn't violate the non-aggression principle. Then there'd be no reason to oppose it, right? Um, yeah. Given those circumstances, no, I can't see why not. Okay. 
Now, I will tell you this, my friend. I do not know the best way to provide national defense. I do not know the best way to provide geographical defense. You don't either. Neither of us do. And even if someone does in the moment, who knows how that's going to change in six months or 12 months or 24 months. Some new weapon gets developed, some new possibility, some new shield, some whatever, right? Yeah. So no individual or group of individuals knows beyond a shadow of a doubt how to provide the best national defense. And so the problem is, is that even if we bypass the non-aggression principle, we run into the people are never that smart principle. In other words, if you give the military, there's an old saying about the military that they're always fighting the last war, right? They don't take into account new circumstances, new situations, right? Which is why America hasn't won an air war since the Second World War, but they have a giant air force. You know, when was the last time the U.S. Navy engaged in a giant sea battle a la the Battle of Jutland and so on? But they're always fighting the last war. Now, the big challenge is, you know, terrorism and insurgents and uh, people who don't put on uniforms and obey a command structure and so on, and, and America regularly loses to these, right? I mean, there's no way that you can say that America won the war in Iraq in that they lost all their territory and now even crazier people are in and so on. And so I don't believe that anybody, any individual, should have the right or the power to take money by force from other people to provide national defense because that's saying one individual outside of the free market is the best person to produce, or one group of individuals is the very best person to produce that national defense. National defense is one of the most complicated and challenging projects that there is. And it's funny, you know, because we have this weird thing where we say, well, this one is really complicated, so we shouldn't let the free market handle it. You know, Lawn mowing, okay, fine. Show, snow shoveling or whatever. But things like roads and national defense and courts and, and prisons and so on, we say, well, these things are really complicated. So we better put a tiny, violent minority in control of them rather than having these really complicated and challenging problems exposed to the free market. But I would argue that the less able we are to think of how it should work, the more it needs to be in the free market. Because... If we can't figure out how it could work, like, you know, if we say, well, um, all lawn mowing should be run by the state. Well, we could kind of figure out how that could work. But for some reason, we say, well, we can figure out how the state might be able to do it. So let's put it in the free market. But when people say, well, what about educating and educating the poor? And what about roads? And what about national defense and the courts and police? And it's like nobody knows the answer. And so suddenly then people say, well, let's just have the state do it. And it's like to me that because we don't know the answer – it means it's a really, really tough and complicated problem. And because it is a really, really tough and complicated problem, we need the very smartest people with the very greatest incentives in the most fluid and fluent situation to be working on this problem. The less we are able to conceive of how a free market could provide services, the more the free market should provide those services because we're not alone in not knowing how that should work. How should... Geographical defense work? How should the law courts work? How should uh, the police work? How should um, roads work? I don't know. 
and I'm a smart guy, you're a smart guy, you don't know, nobody knows. That's exactly why these really complicated problems should be put to the free market, should be left to the free market. And it is weird because it is humbling and it is a, a fundamental hallmark of humility to say, I don't know the answer and I don't believe anybody else knows the answer. And so what we need is the free market to continually work at solving the problem, reducing costs, making things more efficient, working to prevent the problem rather than cure the symptoms or whatever it is. All the things that the free market does really well. Like if you go in 1950 and you say to someone, how should computers work and interact in 50 years? Anybody who said they knew would be lying to you. And so we kind of need the free market to handle all of what you go to somebody in 1980 and say, uh, what kind of phones do people want in 50 years or 40 years? Nobody's going to know, which is uh, this is why we need things in the free market. So the more complicated the problem, our temptation is to sort of say, invent the government as a pseudo solution. And it's exactly the same as what people do when it comes to physics, biology and God. So. Where does how, life how come from? the universe from? was created, yeah. therefore God yeah. did it. Where did so. the universe come from? Well, at the moment, nobody knows. But inventing a God, what it does is it stops people from asking the questions. It, it's the end of knowledge, not the beginning of wisdom. And um, how did um, abiogenesis, uh, how did life originate? And, and I think that there's been some lab experiments. There's some, I don't know if anybody knows for sure. They've got some primordial soup plus electricity plus time, and they've got some stuff up and running, but nobody knows exactly for sure, I don't think at the moment. But we don't then turn around and say, well, God did it, because it's not an answer. And so if we've got a big complicated question, the idea that we say, well, let's just have the government do it, that's exactly the same as saying, well, God did it for some big problem in physics or biology or even ethics. Why, why should we be good? What is goodness? I don't know, let's just follow these 10 stone tablets the bearded guy has. And, uh, oh, by the way, you'll go to hell if you don't. I mean, those aren't answers. And yeah. when we say, well, I don't know how roads could work or national defense, we say, well, let's just hand it over to the government. I mean, <laughs> that's the exact opposite. The more, the more incomprehensible the solution is, the more you need the smartest people with the greatest incentives working in real time in voluntary, in a voluntary manner, in a voluntary interaction. Uh, and so it is one of these weird things where we have to say, I don't know the answer, you don't know the answer, nobody knows the answer. And even if somebody else knows the answer right now, they're not going to know the answer six months from now. And so we need people competing. We need smart people with lots of incentives continually working to solve this problem of whatever it is, that the organization that occurs now. And that's the humility that we need. Um, and, and there is this great temptation to re reach for this big giant bag called a state and put the problems that individuals can't solve into that bag. Oh, I don't know how it should be provided, but let's, you know, roads are complicated. Let's have the state do it. It's like, that's not, that's not an answer. It doesn't solve any problem whatsoever. And, and it breaks principle because now you've got a giant entity that will violate the non-aggression principle. And even if oh, the military should be handled by the state, it's like, okay, well then, the state will start handing out military con contracts to its favored people who are then going to donate for politicians, who are then going to give, you're going to get a military industrial complex. Oh, the state should handle prisons. Okay, then the state now has an incentive to put more and more people in prison because that way they make more, they can justify raising taxes or the, the, the government should run. Like it, the inevitability of corruption 
that always grows in the shadow of coercion. Corruption always grows in the shadow of monopoly and coercion. There's no way to solve any of those issues. The only thing that keeps people from getting too corrupt is voluntarism, is people detaching from the economic inefficiencies of corruption. And the moment that people are forced to pay for something, corruption is going to grow, uh, imbalance is going to grow, and um, uh, you're going to get cronyism, and you're going to get inefficiency. And that's that we know for sure. And so I'll, I'll throw my dice on the free market table. Okay, sorry, that's the end of my, my thing. Go ahead. Um, so I don't disagree that, uh, you know, involuntary taxation is completely immoral. Um, I would be inclined to agree with you 100% as far as pretty much everything being a part of the free market, as the free market offers the best solutions. But I disagree that preventing others to use force in order to like to exercise the, the right to use force as according to what a state does is necessarily immoral, like by preventing um, competition. So if a, if a state manages to be funded by, you know, voluntary measures, whether it be, uh, you know, a state lottery or, uh, you know, just the richest people in the country decide, hey, let's pay for all these things. The, that state preventing another entity that claims the right to use force to solve problems, I wouldn't say is a violation of the non-aggression principle because it's simply the country understanding that when, when it comes to force, there's no room for subjectivism, which people can always, you know, fall okay, into. Okay, sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little lost here. So let's say that the government wants to fund something through a lottery. Sure, yeah. All right. Okay. They cannot compete with a free market entity because the free market entity is going to run the lottery without the overhead of funding whatever the government is using the lottery to fund. Like, let's say the government's going to use lottery to fund roads. Okay, then I introduce some lottery that doesn't have to fund roads and I can immediately pay out more to the people who buy my tickets, right? Because I don't have to pay for the roads. So there's no way that if the government is going to use some methodology to fund something that it's ever going to be able to compete with a free market entity that is providing the same goods and services without the additional overhead of having to fund whatever the government is using that good or service to fund. Okay, so the, that's, that's why the government point. is going to have to use force to prevent other people from running a lottery. And that's, of course, what the government does now. Is that a lot of governments in the West, they run lotteries, and they uh, then use force to prevent other people from running, running competing lotteries. And um, it is the initiation of force to prevent someone from competing with you. Like, if, well, if I'm going to go up and hang on, hang on, lottery, if I'm going to go up, lottery, hang on, sorry. if I'm going to go up and ask a girl out and you're going to, and I see you walking up to ask the same girl out, right? And then I elbow you in the face. Oh, I understand that. Sure. Right. Then, then I'm preventing you from competing with me, but I'm initiating the use of force to do so. But um, if we're going to have objectivity, in regards to law and so say a criminal commits a crime you know rape somebody or kill somebody or whatever and decide and you know people want to punish him for his crime what is the objective basis of law 
that they go behind. Like if so, that like say in the free market we have you know court A, and court B, and court C, and the criminal says I want to get tried by court C because you know they said that rape is a you know a it was my genes taking control and I had no control of it or whatever, right? I think that um, in matters involving force. Um, okay, I, I get it. So you're saying that there can be bad outcomes if there's competing definitions of rape, right? Well, any any sub. No, let's just stay with rape. Just stay with rape. Now, I don't know if you followed any of the sort of mainstream media uh, coverage and hysteria with regards to the supposed rape crisis on American campuses. I don't know if it's happening in Europe. They've got other rape crises that are a little bit more immediate. Right. So so we have a huge problem with um, a, a woman who has sex, who later regrets it, can charge a man with raping her, even if there's absolutely no physical evidence of coercion. Even if there's messages where she says, I had a great time, I'd like to do it again, P.S. would you be my boyfriend? Right? So, so the, idea, the idea that we have solved or somehow made objective the definition of rape by putting governments in charge of the law is false. There's, you, you're invoking this magical objective entity that can somehow define rape objectively and never swerve from it and never be influenced by third-wave feminists and anti-male patriarchy hysteria and all that kind of crap, right? That there is no magic thing that you can invoke to make things objective. What There will be people who will always, hang on, there will be people who will always try and take over the definition of rape and use it for their own crazy political ends. And the only way those people are going to be restrained is because, because people are going to say, your definition of rape has gone mental. I don't want to do business with you anymore. And then you can detach from the entity that has way too broadly defined rape to be like, I was a little tipsy or I was drunk or I regret it or whatever, like all the stuff where there's no physical evidence of coercion and he said, she said, which can never logically go beyond reasonable doubt. So if people start casting the net too widely and prosecuting too widely, People will stop doing business with them, but you don't have that choice with the government as it stands. Now, let's say that people say, well, the only thing that is rape is if somebody actually has a gun to your head. Well, that's too narrow. It's not too broad. That's too narrow a definition of rape. And people will say, well, I don't feel protected. We need a balance. Somewhere between I regret it and someone had a gun to my head, there's still going to be rape. I don't know where the line is, and it's going to be complicated, and it's going to be challenging. So we need entities where voluntarism is going to help keep them in something that is efficient, that is not overcharging, and at the same time is not undercharging where people feel unsafe. Now, there's no way a government monopoly will ever consistently walk that fine line. It's going to be taken over by hysterics, by neurasthetics, by neurotics, by crazy people, by people with irrational hatreds for whatever gender or whatever group or whatever class or whatever. Like So there's no way to guarantee any kind of efficiency or sensitivity to changing market forces when you have a government in charge. So this idea that we'll, we'll make something objective by giving it to the government is false. Well, even this even idea that the government we have now is, you know, what the government really is or ought to be is also false. I mean, in hypothetical scenario, it's uh, 1776 and they're putting together the Constitution of the United States. And say so they wrote it all how it is. 
except they explicitly state that government shall not have the right ever to interfere in economics. So there's no welfare, there's no um, no government-sponsored labor unions or government-sponsored you know, monopolies and other economic projects and all these things. And also, at the same time, rights are explicitly defined. So, I mean, if you take an example of the Human Rights Code of Canada, I saw it posted somewhere the other day. It was uh, on a wall in a government building. And it was saying, you know, things like rights from freedom from harassment and things that there's just no real conception of rights. And for like for any objective definition of rights, you know, philosophy is completely necessary. And um, so I think a government, any government that's founded on any sort of philosophical ideas that are, you know, illogical or based on any false premises at any point, you know, necessarily is going to fail. And that's what we have as an example all over the place. But if you had to say... Okay, you know, but, but do you understand what I'm saying? Let's say that the government changes the definition of rape to be something that is too broad and, and can't be proven and, and so on, right? What is your option as a private citizen in that situation. Now, if you're engaged with someone who's protecting you from rape by some private agency, if they do something you don't like, you can switch. But if the government does something you don't like, you have no choice because you leave your country or leave your entire environment or whatever it is, but you don't have any choice. And therefore, they can kind of do what they want and they're going to end up following the preferences of the big bullies or the, 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 the most insane people with the most crazy fetish OCD axe to grind or whatever. And so in the free market, you'll have the chance to disengage from those people. And um, in the government, you won't. So I just really want to point out this idea that you've got this magic entity called the government, which is going to be uh, principled and objective and rational and somehow restrain itself over time. You know, you say, well, what if you started off the government when there was no welfare? Well, there was no welfare at the beginning of the United States, and now there is. So I'm going to move on to the next caller, but I really appreciate you bringing these topics up. I mean... Um, uh, it's uh, very, very important stuff to to talk about. And I'm very much, um, my, my perspective, which I've argued for a number of times before, is I don't care what the consequences are of doing the right thing. I don't care what the consequences are of consistently following the non-aggression principle. Because it would be insanely arrogant of me to imagine that I knew what the consequences were of obeying the non-aggression principle. You know, the, I've used the example before. What are the consequences of ending slavery? Nobody knew. Nobody could possibly know what the consequences were of ending slavery. What are the consequences of having a stateless society? I don't know. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Because people can invent whatever negative consequences they want. The future is a fantasy. And people can people that future, that fantasy with any demons that they want. The future is to politics as hell is to religion or heaven. And so politicians will say, well, give me power and I'll turn this world into heaven. And if you give my opponent power, he will turn it into hell. And when you talk about following principles, people will populate, if they like your principles, they'll populate the future with angels and it will be heaven. And if they really don't like your principles or your principles threaten their immediate economic self-interest, then they will populate your future or the future that you propose with demons, with devils. It will be terrible. It will be bad. And they'll create 
these all-wise institutions called governments that will follow the rules that they like. But if you want to create a government that follows the rules that you like, well, then it will be a really bad, corrupt, evil, nasty institution. So uh, ignore the future when it comes to principles. Ignore the future when it comes to principles. Uh, principles have nothing to do with the future, any more than mathematics is going to change the day after tomorrow, any more than physics is going to fundamentally alter itself the day after tomorrow. Physics is independent of time. Mathematics is independent of time. Biology, in terms of its principles, is independent of time. Philosophy is independent of time. And the future is a trap wherein people project what their positive or negative imagined consequences are going to be by populating the future with angels or devils in an attempt to sway you into either being afraid of principles they don't like or loving principles that they do like. Forget about the future. Let's get on with the past. All right, let's get on with the next caller, but thanks very much for your comment. All right, well, up next is John. John wrote in and said, I'm a big Trump supporter. How come every time I try and have an honest conversation or debate with somebody who doesn't like Trump, usually a liberal, I'm met with non-arguments? All they can say is Trump is a racist, Trump is Hitler, Trump is a xenophobe, Trump is stupid, Trump is only rich because of his dad, etc., etc. I also see news, news is in quotes, articles daily on the Huffington Post, MSNBC, Yahoo, etc., saying all the same things about Trump. All they can do is call names and use emotions over facts. What do you think causes such behavior? That is from John. Hi, John. How are you doing? Good. Can you hear me? Uh, I can. Actually, it's. I used to think it was more of a principle. It's actually just one guy that causes this behavior. Who's that? Just one guy. I, I'm. I'm looking for him. I'm. I'm like. I'm all over the place looking for him. His first name is Stu. Do you know what his last name is? Uh, <laughs> no. Well, his first name is Stu, my friend, and his last name is Pidity. <laughs> yeah. No, that's all it is. It's they're just dumb people who are afraid that they're not going to get things for free. That that's it's it's really not that complicated. I mean, if if oh Trump is bad, Trump is this, oh Trump is all right, okay. So you don't like Donald Trump, and why don't you? Do they should just be honest. I hate Donald Trump. I hate him. Now, people have a tough time saying they hate someone, so they have to usually invent some negative label to stick to that person to pretend that their hate is rational. I'm an objective moral agent. I have just evaluated Donald Trump completely independent of my political or economic self-interest, and I have evaluated him objectively to have characteristics such as Hitlery <laughs> and you know xenophobic and and Islamophobic and right so there's no objective process by which people go through when they they have these kinds of criticisms at all and all, all that happens is that Trump threatens some people's self-interest and that self-interest could be emotional. That self-interest could be political. In other words, they want political power. That self-interest could be the audience base that they have built up. And, you know, if you, you talk about, you know, Huffington Post, MSNBC, Yahoo, and so on, well, 
who goes to those sites? Liberals and women, but to a large degree, <laughs> I repeat myself. And so they have an audience and they're playing to those audiences' uh, preferences. So why do people dislike Donald Trump? They have deep emotional reasons for doing so. And those emotional reasons are sometimes more practical in that, wait, he's going to reduce taxes? Wait, I live on tax revenues. I am a government worker. I am on welfare. I get a lot of contracts from the military. I, you know, And so when he talks about lowering taxes, people don't like it because they get money from taxes and that's lowering their potential source of income. Um, if he's talking about limiting um, immigrants from the third world coming into America, well, those people vote for the Democrats. And so the Democrats want to bring those people in so that they'll vote Democrat. And the Republicans want to keep those people out because they vote Democrat. I have no idea why it's bad for the Republicans to want to keep them out because they vote Democrat, but it's totally fine for the Democrats to want them in because they vote Democrat. It's exactly the same motivation for both groups. And so um, it's just there's immediate political or economic self-interest. And in particular, women seem to be fairly polarized with regards to uh, Trump. Trump is an unabashed alpha male. Trump is knowledgeable of his sexual market value. He's knowledgeable of his economic value. He's confident. He repeatedly calls himself a success. He doesn't have on this false modesty. Like, you know, you see Kasich, this like question mark shaped cuck who's basically saying, I, I can't believe my wife married me and stayed married to me. I think the Obama Supreme Court nominee just did the same thing, you know, like, I can't, she's put up with me for so many years. Like, can you imagine Trump saying that? I, I can't believe this hot woman from Eastern Europe is married to me. He's like, yeah, I'm the best thing that there is. So um, she was wise to marry me. She made a good decision. I made a good decision. I respect her. She respects me. And yeah, I've, I've earned that tasty, tasty slice of uh, <laughs> saved from the Muslims uh, hot flesh. So I mean, he's, he's a very confident guy. And of course, I think a lot of people are kind of alarmed that men might look at Trump and say, wait a minute, he's confident and popular. He's confident and successful. He's not bowing down to everyone and everything in society and hoping to scrape out another five minutes of peace and quiet by appeasing everyone around them. And he's pretty successful. And there is, I think, some concern that uh, his sort of alpha male confidence is going to transfer to other men and other men are going to start to feel confident and if men start to feel confident again the current self-destructive course in society is going to be interrupted to the dismay of a lot of parasites and hangers-on so um yeah it's it, it's just they they're very good at sensing what is positive for their immediate self-interest and if someone comes along who threatens that uh, then there's a big problem and the last thing i mentioned too is that there's, you know, an old pretty funny line from Monty Python, like, I come and see the violence inherent in the system, right? And the, the, the violence inherent in the system is, you know, being taxed at source rather than someone taking money from you in an alley, right? Like the people, hey, I just had another kid to an unstable guy, so I've got to go and get more child tax credit rather than go and shake down the restaurant owner next door. I'm going to have the government go and do it. And there is a... um a lot of violence in society that is being bought off at the moment. And uh, I talked about this um, in the 
the first call, so I'll just touch on it briefly here, but people are afraid of the violence in the system becoming more explicit. And that is bad for the dependent classes, right? For the people who are being preyed upon, for the taxpayers, for the contributors, having the violence in the system become explicit is very good for them. But for the people who are on the receiving end of all of this government drip drip, right, all of this bloody milk of state redistribution, they don't want the violence inherent in the system to be made explicit because that is going to make them look bad and it's going to make them feel bad. And um, so, you know, like, like here's an example, right? So uh, people are, you know, I get these messages because I've spoken out about some of the uh, challenges of the European migrant crisis. Where's your compassion, man? Where's your compassion for these people? Oh, the illegal immigrants, where's your compassion for them? It's like, I don't know. Where's their compassion for the taxpayers? You know, when people coming over and they're 60, 70, 80, 90% of them on welfare in a system they've never paid into, where's their compassion for the European taxpayer, for the American taxpayer, for the Canadian taxpayer? Where's their compassion for me? So they come over and they've never paid into the system and they get thousands and thousands of dollars a month that come out of my bank account Where's their compassion for me? I don't think I could actually go to some other country and just start feeding off their government money, never having paid into the system. I'd feel bad about that. And so I don't, it's never a good idea to have more compassion for others than they have compassion for you. That's just a great way to get taken to the cleaners and exploited until your gene pool expires. And so people say, oh, well, where's, where's your compassion for the illegal immigrants? It's like, well, where's their compassion for me? Where's their compassion for, you know, if my kids were in public school, for the fact that my kids are now getting a worse education, my tax bill's going up, and I get to be called racist for speaking out. Well, where's their compassion for me? I had this conversation in the last show with a guy from the Middle East who had never even considered the fact that all these people are coming piling onto the European welfare state system, having never paid into that system, and are just taking money from the taxpayers. Where's their compassion for the taxpayers? And so... This idea that we just, we pay off a bunch of people and that way they won't riot. Well, that's kicking the can down the road. That's, you know, stuffing a whole bunch of uh, bloody rags into the mouth of the volcano or the hot springs eruption, the geyser, whatever you want to call it. And um, everybody knows that there are certain segments within American society that if the government welfare is interrupted, what are they going to do? They're going to riot. They're going to riot. Of course they are. Of course they are. And then who who's going to, like, what's going to happen? Well, I mean, if, if you're in Ferguson, they're going to be given space to riot and no one's ever going to get prosecuted and they can live in this consequence-free lifestyle and so on. But if someone like Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump is in power and there are riots, well, we know what happened with Donald, sorry, we know what happened with Ronald Reagan is that he brought out the National Guard and put down the riots. What do you think is going to happen if Donald Trump is in power and there are riots? Uh, we'll probably say he's Hitler if he does that. No, no. What's, what's, gonna, what's he going to do? He'll probably put it down. Yeah, he'll put it down. 
And in so doing, he will save the city, right? They didn't put down the riots in Detroit in the 1960s and in other places. And Detroit is a dead city now, populated by zombies and packs of wild feral dogs. I mean, it's, it's insane. We used to be the richest city in America, and now it's dead, dead. And um, so people are scared of the dependency that has been fostered among the poor over the past um, 50 uh, or 60 years. And they're scared of it. And, you know, it's, it's like the old thing that, that uh, Jefferson said about slavery, that he said, we've got a wolf by the ears. And we can neither kill him nor let him go. And um, with this, there's been this terrible, horrible, horrifying social experiment of the welfare state. And, I mean, I talk about the military-industrial complex as well, but nobody imagines that the shareholders in Boeing are going to riot and set fire to things and, and whatever, right? But there's a particular dependent underclass that is going to riot. And no, nobody's into the welfare state because they think it's a good idea anymore. Nobody looks at its wonderful success and how it's brought so many people out of poverty and everybody's pretty much in the middle class now. And it's, you know, eliminated the poor. I mean, everybody knows it's been a complete disaster. It's just that everybody knows that if you try and reform the welfare state, there's a great danger of riots. And um, if you have someone from the left in, then they won't do what is practical and deal with the riots and, and put the riots down and save the city. Um, but if Trump is in, Trump is will be, I, I can't speak for the guy, but my guess is that he would be willing to put down the riots. And people don't want to see the violence inherent in the system. They don't want to see it. Well, women in particular, but, you know, some men too. I just, they don't want to see it. They want to imagine that Welfare is something to do. It's not with buying votes and it's not with screw the underclass. Let's just remove every sane cause and effect from their environment. People think it's about helping people and taking care of the poor victimized single mom. Like, it's not. It's just a violent, ugly, brutal, city-destroying, con consecutive and concussive wave of vote buying. That's all it is. I want political power to hell with your future. and. The fact that it is so brutal and it is so destructive to the poor and it is so destructive to children and it is so destructive to neighborhoods and it is so destructive to cities and it is so destructive to civilization, community, culture, everything that you can imagine. The fact that it is so destructive can be covered up as long as people are willing to bribe the recipients into not rioting. And so if the government starts to run out of money, and I think it's getting close, then the people who want to be appeased because they're willing to riot don't want Donald Trump in power because Donald Trump probably won't appease them and will save the city by putting down the riots. And they don't want that. They want someone who they're bullying is going to break and have them, uh, they want someone in who's going to chamberlain them, not who's going to Churchill them. And it's weird. Um, do you think, all this funny calling him names and making fun of him is that um is that because he's successful no no i mean look if if people were afraid of if people were all just angry at rich people when I mean, they really hate hillary clinton hillary clinton 
Oh, Bill Clinton in particular, you know, like uh, younger people don't really know this, but Bill Clinton was like the first guy to get out of the White House and immediately start going on like very expensive speaking tours. I mean, presidents didn't used to do that. They had some dignity, some pride. But I mean, Hillary Clinton has made millions, tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars through some pretty corrupt, uh, at least allegedly pretty corrupt mechanisms, you know, like through the Clinton Foundation, which is, I think, at the moment being investigated by the FBI and so on. So if they really didn't like rich people, then they'd have a big problem with the Clintons who are hugely rich and have, I don't know, have they provided a lot of free market value to the world? No, I think they provided a lot of political access. I think they provided a lot of favorable rulings from the State Department while Hillary Clinton was in charge of these things. But... um no, it's not because he's rich. Uh, it's because he's um, he's not afraid. I shouldn't say that because, again, I can't read his mind. He says you have to be tough to run for president. And of course you do, right? Uh, unless you're on the left, in which case you can just do whatever you want, right? Because you'll know that the media will always be the human shield for between you and reality. But um, he is undaunted by verbal abuse. Now, what does the left have? The left has verbal abuse. It's all they have. And that's what you see. They're just people verbally abusing. It's racist, Hitler, xenophobic, stupid. And so it's it's verbal abuse. Now, if, if somebody not only survives but flourishes as a result of or independent of the verbal abuse heaped on him, then the verbal abusers lose a lot of power. They lose a lot of power. It's like a priest, if you no longer believe in God, his verbal threats of hell land on nothing in you. You know, I mean, the number of times a week I'm told I'm going to hell because of what I think, oh, well, no God, no hell. You're, you're threatening me with being attacked by a unicorn. I think I'll survive. <laughs> and so they have to escalate their verbal abuse until someone complies. And if somebody is undaunted by their verbal abuse and flourishes despite or even because of the verbal abuse, that's horrifying to people. That's to, to the people who have lived on their verbal abuse, who have gotten huge amounts, huge numbers of resources because they're willing to use the most horrifying terms of verbal abuse. You know, like the, the, the Republican body, uh, Party trot, trotted out aging underwear model Mitt Romney and his firehose vat of gel, and Mitt Romney trashed Donald Trump, right? And what happened? People were like, wow. If Mitt Romney doesn't like Donald Trump, I'm voting for Donald Trump. Like his popularity went up after he was verbally abused. And you think of think of, you know, some think of some bitchy woman who's just nagging the shit out of her husband, constantly putting him down, calling him a loser, calling him worthless, calling him shit and crap. Right? And this guy is like 
shuffling along, staring at the sidewalk, a broken man. Hero of a Paul Young song. And let's say that this guy then starts becoming friends with a guy who's like, you, she treats you like hell. Why is she yelling at you? You, you? You're out there working money. She's sitting at home, bonbons and soap operas, and she's yelling at you and calling you a loser. What the hell has she done with her life? You've got to have some pride, man. You've got to have some spine. Don't put up with this stuff. This is terrible. I hate to see you being treated this way. And this is not only bad for you, but you've got a son who's looking at your marriage and this is going to imprint on him, right? How is the wife, the bitchy, nagging, domineering, ball-breaking wife, going to view the friend of her husband who's encouraging him to stand up for himself? Not too, not too well. Not going to like him. Nope. Not too well. And that's, that's the story, right? The, 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 the Trump supporters in general are the broken down husbands. The media is the bitchy, nagging, verbally abusive wife who's broken their spine. And Trump is coming along and saying, sit up straight, shake it off, reach between your legs, feel those castanets. They could help you right about now. Don't care if you're male or female. They can help you right about now. Stop putting up with this shit. Sticks and stones can break your bones. Words can never hurt you. And look, they yell terrible terms at me. I get stronger and more powerful and have greater effects. So take a page from my example. All they have are words and you can survive words. What are you, girls? (laughs) And so the media senses that Donald Trump is going, as I've talked about the makers and the takers, the media is sensing that Donald Trump is going to put some spine in the makers so that the verbal abuse of the takers is going to have less effect. And listen, I mean, whatever you think of the guy, you got to get and you got to give him props. He is a magnificent example of flourishing in the face of bottomless verbal abuse. Oh, but when he dishes it out, it's... it's it's so bad. Oh, yeah, the cry bullies, right? They cry out in pain it's as like they the beat you. The media call him everything, yeah. and every, and any, everything and anything, but then when he calls them a they flip out. Yeah, so what happens, what happens if verbal abuse no longer works in society? What happens if people are no longer afraid of being called racist or Islamophobes or xenophobic or sexist or part of the war on women? or like What happens? What the hell happens in society if we have a dialogue free of verbal abuse? What happens if verbal abusers have to shut the living fuck up and let intelligent people with reason and evidence have an adult conversation? What happens if the verbal abusers are revealed as petty, nasty, vicious, ugly, little trolls? And people actually have an intelligent decision based on reason and evidence, based on facts, based on biology. Actually have reasonable and intelligent discussions free of the fascist tyranny of verbal abuse. Free of, imagine imagine if people could have a conversation about immigration with no fear of being called racist, with no fear of being called Islamophobic, with no fear of being called whatever, right? Or imagine if men and women could have discussion about male and female issues 
without misogyny and patriarchy and cisgender scum or whatever it is. Imagine if people could have conversations about gays and, and straights without the sword of Damocles of verbal abuse hanging over their heads. And Donald Trump is striding like a colossus into a society that has had two or three generations of vicious verbal abuse defining almost all public discourse. He is striding in, and the arrows don't work. The death rays make him stronger, make his hairline lower and more to the right, right? And that is terrifying. It is absolutely terrifying for the verbal abusers that their verbal abuse might not work. What what happens if your gun just goes click, click, click? Well, you are out of power. And the power in the world is not guns, but language at the moment. And I'm not saying it should be guns. I'm just saying right now, the real power in the world is is language. The real conformity, the real fascism, the real brutality, the real carved channels of power follow syllables, not fists. And people are throwing verbal abuse at Donald Trump because that's all they've got is verbal abuse. And verbal abuse is one of these things like when you just wake up and shake it off, it's like, oh, it's just vicious idiots making noise. And the fact that there's this ever escalation of verbal abuse and the most illuminating thing, I think the thing that's going to drive his campaign to real fruition was not just the shutdown of his event in Chicago, but everyone seeing how the media and how Rubio and Cruz and all that handled it. I mean, I, I there's a lot of reasons why Cruz lost, sorry, why Rubio lost Florida so badly. But one of them was because he blamed Donald Trump for the violence and threats of violence of the leftist agitators. And um, it's, it's going to kill Cruz's campaign too, and it's killing the media because it's such a vicious double standard. It's such, and I just did an essay on this, uh, so I won't, and what pisses me off about the Donald Trump protest, so you can check that out. It's such a vicious double standard that a man who ever hits a woman, there's no amount of verbal abuse that can ever justify hitting a woman. She can call him every name in the book. He can't lift a finger against her. Oh, but Donald Trump apparently uses some mildly divisive language. So yeah, people should be able to shut down his events. Like it's such a ridiculous double standard that, and it's so in your face that the hypocrisy, manipulation and bullying and verbal abuse of the mainstream media towards anybody, even remotely to the right of Lenin, has <laughs> uh, become so obvious now. And verbal abuse works until it doesn't. And Donald Trump has come along and is succeeding with everyone from left and right and in between, screaming bottomless vats of verbal abuse at him, with people busting up friendships, breaking up long-term relationships based upon one person's support for Donald Trump versus the others. And he is going from victory to victory, 
despite every single piece of artillery that the left and the right, the Republican establishment and the Democrats have, and the libertarians, a lot of libertarians are very hostile towards Donald Trump. And the fact that he is going from success to success is going to embolden an entire generation with the eyes to see that these bullets, these arrows, they only exist in your mind. You know, people can throw all the knives they want at you, but you're the one who has to grab them and push them into your own rib. You know, people can shoot all the arrows that they want at you. They just land at your feet. You're the one who has to pick them up and stick them into your own side. And people are seeing the remarkable spectacle of a confident alpha male marching forward towards his objective with all of these shrill, golem-like, twisted screams of hatred from everyone around him. He doesn't self-attack. He punches back sometimes. And he moves on to his objective. And if that is not enough to put balls and a spine back into the majority of thinking Americans, there is no hope for the country. Was that a relatively reasonable answer? Yeah, it was perfect. Thanks. All right. Thanks, man. Oh, and by the way, everyone, please don't tell me I lost friends Because I supported Donald Trump. No. No, 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 no. (laughs) No, 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 no. (sighs) I lost cockroaches because I turned the light on. It's like, not your friends. If people aren't curious as to why you are sympathetic to or favorable to, or I mean, whatever, right? I I don't count myself a Donald Trump supporter, but he's a fascinating sociological phenomenon with some positive aspects in society. But if people just hate you because you have a particular preference for someone and don't ask you questions and so on, please don't tell me you've lost a friend because of your perspective. That's just nonsense. They never were your friends at all, and you've just saved some time. Uh, Thanks, everyone, so much for your calls and your conversations. As always, I humbly bow towards your honesty and openness and curiosity. You know, I got to tell you, the fact that I can open up a little hole in the time-space continuum and see the dream of someone in another country from months ago is a really amazing, amazing thing. You know, that dream, if the guy had never talked about it, it would have died with him and it would have gone and and nobody would ever have known about it. The fact that we've opened up this little hole in the time-space continuum, we've pulled this dream out of this man's unconscious and we have now displayed it to the world forever. People have watched this in a thousand years, in 5,000 years. Why not? People still read Aristotle. Uh, let's, Let's keep up the tradition. That is a beautiful and wonderful thing. You know, I was reading... Um, books that I read as a kid to my daughter. They're called The Famous Five by Enid Blyton, this uh, woman. I thought it was a dude for the longest time when I was a kid, but um, I thought it was Eric or something. It's a squiggly signature. Anyway, and um, in, in one of them, one of the kids, they're in a castle, and there's this uh, gallery going around this room, uh, and uh, they don't know what it was for. What was there a gallery for? What was going on down there? Nobody knows. And the... Um, The boy says to himself, he says, I wish I could turn back the years and know what was happening down in that room and what this gallery was for. I wish I could turn back the years so that I could see all the people in this area and know what it was used for. And um, 
you know, the people who call in, the people who are part of this conversation, we are opening up people's minds and sharing them with everyone forever. You call into the show, your thoughts, my thoughts, our conversation is frozen in time, projected forward for everyone forever. You have now contributed to the philosophical growth of the species. And it's a great honor that people do this with me. It moves me more than I can say. And I'm incredibly grateful that people do. You know, for a lot of people, this kind of conversation in a public forum is a challenge. And I appreciate that people screw their courage to the sticking place and, and, and call in and have these conversations so that people in the future will see what we thought about, what we spoke about, what mattered to us. We are laying down these tracks for everyone in the future to see and to hear with great vividity. You know, when I go to museums, I love museums, and I go to museums and you see these, here's a piece of pottery from 6,000 years ago with a tax bill. And, you know, I see the fingers writing and I, what was the breath that was on it? What was the, what were the thought processes? What was it like to live in a world that you thought was flat sitting on a turtle? <laughs> it's amazing. People talk about back in ancient Greece, they say, oh, it was such an unimaginably long time ago. People were so different. They don't think the same anymore and so on. I want to always, this is why I wrote so many historical novels, I always want to get into other people's thoughts, people's in the past thoughts. And it's really tough, you know, as people write autobiographies and they're usually kind of self-serving and they usually, you know, create a particular portrait or a particular picture that is designed to kind of have an effect and usually it has to do with vanity and so on. But there's not a huge amount of vanity, I think, in the calls that we have. I think this is very honest, mutual self-expression. And we have created now... I don't know. I mean, I'm having a call-in shows that we've done hundreds, if not over a thousand, maybe. But we've done hundreds and hundreds of call-in shows, and this is a record forever of what two people in this time slice found the most meaningful to talk about in the short time that they had together. It's a great gift for everyone. It's a great library that we are creating for the world to peruse and consume forever. And I just massively appreciate uh, everybody's willingness to to call in, to to fund what it is that we're doing, freedomainradio.com slash donate to, to help us out, to help us continue to build this library of influence and effects. And um, also wanted to thank everyone who is um, liking and sharing the videos. You know, we're um, doing like, uh, I think almost 4 million video views a month or over 350,000 subscribers and about an equivalent number of podcast downloads is, you know, 8 million views and downloads a month. That is wonderful. It will be more and better as we go forward and, you know, like and share and subscribe and all those kinds of things uh, to help us out. Um, so thank you. Uh, thank you everyone so, so much for this wonderful opportunity for the greatest conversations in the world. And uh, have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week. We'll talk to you on the weekend.